Welcome to the After the Battle Campfire, presented by the Modern Ronin. I'm your host, Tommy Chase, and I'll be your guide through the stories that are about to be told. All right, on today's episode, I talked to my good friend, Shep Reimer. I learned some things about him I didn't even know. So this is part one of two parts. And this is probably the longest podcast that we have done when you combine both parts. It's almost six hours between the two. In the first part, we talk about Shep's growing up in Central America and dealing with Native Americans because his family was missionaries and they literally wrote and created alphabets for certain Native American tribes in Central America. He moved back to the United States in his early teens and decided to join the Navy. He became one of less than a hundred special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen at the time. And we tell his story. Hey, okay. So we're back again for, I think, episode number seven. You're the seventh person, man. That's good news. With my good buddy, Jeff Reimer. He's a... He is a former corpsman. I know he doesn't like that. Uh, but he lived in a special side of the corpsman world, and we're going to get into that. But, Jep, say hi. Hello, everybody. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for the invite. No worries, I'm man. Point. So where we're going to start is at the very, very, very beginning. Little tiny Shep. So where did you grow up? I actually grew up overseas. I, I was born in Guatemala and uh, grew up and didn't leave there until I was 15. Oh, I didn't wow. come back to the U.S. until I was 15. I was running around uh, the jungles of Guatemala and the highlands. Uh, at one point, I didn't even know I was white. <laughs> that, that's crazy. I would have never guessed that. I would have guessed uh, somewhere up northeast or, nor or north. Like, no, uh, no, my, my, my dad was in, uh, serving down there. And, uh, as a result of that, uh, central you know, central America was where we were at. So I grew up running around Guatemala. I, I think actually that set the stage for a lot of my life too. Which I was going to ask next. So you said your dad was serving, was he military? Actually, no, man. My parents were missionaries. Believe oh, wow. I know. All the unique things, right? Completely I, different. <laughs> yeah. so were they were they down there just on a mission then for all those years? Yeah, my dad actually was doing um, uh, Bible translation. So oh, wow. he's translating uh, the New Testament uh, for for a group of people that um, didn't have uh, any any Bible in their in their language. Guatemala has about eighty. 80 to 88 uh, different splinter um, languages that came from the Mayan tongue. Oh, wow. After the, after the Spanish came through with their conquistadors, uh, the Mayan split, and Guatemala has one of the most diverse language groups. So that's 80 different groups of people that don't, cannot communicate with each other, other than the Mayan language. Yeah, it's, it's a very diverse uh, country. Wow. Damn, so, already learning shit. <laughs> What's that? He said, I'm already learning shit. <laughs> yeah, so so he he uh he was down there doing that and he was a linguist. 
he, he went to college to be a linguist and so that attracted him and um uh the, the first uh, the, i think the real challenge for him was was uh because uh they had no written word so he had to create an alphabet for them uh based Ooh. on their language Damn. so yeah so that's why we spent so many years there because he was trying to get himself in uh in with the people learn the language create an alphabet and then uh further from there do some translation work meanwhile i come along and i'm just part of the community <laughs> running around so were you guys uh I'm trying to think of an American analogy. Were you guys like living on the equivalent, like of a reservation then? No, uh, the, it's, it's strange that the country it's, um, and in fact, you know, Guatemala had a big a civil war between say the late 79 ish all the way into the nineties, 1994 is when they signed the peace accords. And it was basically because, you know, the Spanish elite, which ran the country, uh, basically the aristocrats, uh, kept the Indian populations down. And so they kind of banded together and, and, uh, and did guerrilla warfare against the government for a long time. And um, it, it's not like a reservation. They had their own village. It was way tucked up in the northeast side of the country in the mountains. Um, and so uh, they just had their own territory that they had moved into after after the uh conquistadors came through i guess that's crazy so i mean i'm trying to remember it goes uh mexico then guatemala or mexico yes yep okay. it borders guatemala and belize is right next to it too okay so did you grow up bilingual then learning both spanish and english yeah try actually um my my mom made sure she was speaking english to me in the home but um we had um, all kinds of people around us. And of course the Indians that didn't speak Spanish, um, they would speak their, their language to me. It was called mom, M-A-M. And, uh, so I grew up actually learning. My first word was a mom word, not a English or Spanish. Oh, wow. <laughs> Crazy. So, I, can tell you, I can only tell you about a couple of words now. So growing up there, how connected back to the States were you? I mean, obviously, no internet back then. No, no internet. Uh, it was all snail mail. And um, back then, it would take probably two months for a letter to get to where it needed to go back in the United States. So even snail mail was quite uh, lengthy. And we would go back. Um, I remember going back about four times uh, during that, before uh, we came back to live. And uh, that was to visit... Uh, grandparents, uncles, aunts, et cetera. Um, and then uh, my parents lived on on support. They didn't have like a paycheck. They weren't working for an organization that had uh, a paycheck. So they had to get people to, so once in a while during the summer, they would come on what they call a furlough and they would drive around the United States and visit their supporters and just kind of reaffirm what, that they were doing, what they were supposed to be doing so that they'd get, continue to get that support. So kind of like a grant, like you, you get, X amount done and we'll give you this amount of money and then come and show us that it's been done? Uh, no, it's really based on like, hey, Tommy, I know you. Will you support me while I go do this work? And then you send me however much you want in a month or not, depending on. So you never knew what we were what we were getting from. That's crazy. Yeah, it actually kind of was. I didn't know that until I was an adult. But. 
Well, the, the funny side of that is, you know, cost of living down there and you being a kid, you wouldn't have any concept of. No, no. And besides, there was no cost for me. My toys were like sticks and stuff that I found. Uh, I used to make balls out of the uh, rubber trees. We would oh, just nice. open and, and the sap would come out and we would just continue to mess with them until they were a big enough ball for us to play with. So, so you really grew up uh, as a kid, kid in the way that um, so many kids probably look at now going, that's so alien. Yes. Playing outside and being in the uh, dirt. and Absolutely. Yep. Being in the dirt almost all the time. Um, tending to the pigs. They didn't, that was about the one, goats and pigs are about the one luxury that they had in the village. If they killed a cow, it was like once a year for some huge celebration. Oh, wow. And uh, the um, main staple was corn, so the kids would help. We, we a lot of times tended the, the, the goats and stuff, which is what gave us the opportunity to run around. And then we would play in between, you know, herding goats around. Soccer was the one sport that everybody loved. So somehow they'd gotten soccer balls up there. And, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, a lot of times I was barefoot too. Oh, nice. So you, you, you were living the little wild kid life, probably had no Pretty concept much. of time or anything like that. Nothing. No, under, no, no time. No, just as long as I had, I had to be back around the, the house when sun, when the sun went down, sun was coming down. So you were there till you were 15. So what was it like coming back? Uh, well, because so, so um, fast fast forward a few years, I, I think I was probably about ten. We had to move to the capital city, which was more like what a city is um, here in the United States, Guatemala City, because of the the guerrillas came in and uh, um, basically took over our house as a point for fighting their war, so, and so it wasn't safe for us. So we left the village and came back to the uh, main city. And so I was exposed to a lot more modern things, TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where I discovered, you know, the American way of life, shows on TV, et cetera, and realized, oh, I'm, I'm actually an American kid. <laughs> so uh, one of the reasons that my parents uh, wanted to move us back is because a lot of the kids that went back for college on their own were having a hard time. There was a few suicides. Uh, because just that huge culture shock, even for uh, even for for a white kid, was was difficult. Um, growing up like that, and then coming back to a culture that was so gluttonous and so uh, first world, was very difficult for a lot of people. So, so did, did uh, was there a little expat community then of uh, people doing oh yeah. things similar? Yeah. We similar basically had our own little community. And um, to this day, like for example, I, I shouldn't say this out loud, but like. My family was that group of people, you know, we called them aunts and uncles and um, I didn't really know my grandparents or aunts and uncles. Uh, so, so yes, it was basically a little community of, of, of people that were all serving, including like um, attache and the ambassador's kids and all, all of them. Oh. Uh, so I got to know a lot of really interesting pers personalities just through their kids, just hanging out and playing with their kids. So you go back to um guatemala city then how long did you guys stay there about five years then yeah it was probably five to seven years uh, i can't remember exactly i think i was probably between eight and ten when we moved back there 
did did you guys ever feel like you um with all the uh civil war and infighting going on did you guys ever feel threatened being americans uh so i don't think that either my parents did a good job of uh staving off that fear from me but i don't i never felt it i know my mom did now talking to her after we're back here she was terrified but my dad refused to leave and uh so did everyone else and there was kind of this um even though there was there was a lot of kidnappings going on and uh they started to result into more of the Colombian FARC style of making money um there was this understanding that if if villagers kind of were like you know these people are off limits <clears throat> type of thing um but my mom still made my dad move us back to the capital she didn't want us up there just in case uh my dad went back to the village all the time he, he would stay up there six weeks at a time and then come back like many deployments oh, and then come back for like a four-day weekend or whatever and uh he was fine so but so I, de I dedicated to what he was doing though absolutely he was absolutely yep yeah. i remember that so then what was the what was the catalyst to bring you your family back to the states it really was the the idea that they wanted us to go through high school as a family unit so that um, if there was any drama that they could be there for us and it wouldn't be like we were in the United States and they were still down there. Oh, okay. So, so they, my sister, who's adopted, by the way, um, and I were moved back so that I could start high school. And that's when my sister was in middle school. And uh, neither one of them wanted to live really near their family. So they chose Colorado. And that's why everybody always knows me as being from Colorado, because that's kind of like our landing zone. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't even know you were, I th again, I still thought you were from like the Northeast or Michigan or somewhere like that. Nope. Nope. I, I'm, I'm from everywhere. But uh, yeah, Colorado's uh, where they decided to land. So Colorado Springs, they chose. And uh, as soon as I got back there, I realized how much life I wasn't experiencing and kind of exploded. So, what were you a sophomore when you got back, or a freshman? Freshman. Freshman. I was a freshman, for sure. And 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 uh, up until that point, the only sport I'd known was soccer, right, or what we called football. And how was uh, how was getting into the American way of life? Well, I loved it. First of all, coming in, I was like this. Uh, um, I don't know how how to put it, but. It was such a unique story, right? So I'm coming into this high school and all these kids have grown up together. And so everybody's dated everybody, but now I'm the new kid, right? And I get this cool story where I'm coming from this foreign country, et cetera. So I got a lot of girl attention and all of a sudden uh, I had all these other sports open to me. Um, I was about to get my driver's license. So I had freedom and uh, I just, I took advantage of it all, man. I <clears throat> I should have stuck with football, though. I was really good at that. I probably could have got a scholarship. Wait, uh, which, which, which football? So we're, we clarify. Our football? Or yeah, soccer. Soccer. Sorry about that. No, no, no. I mean. <laughs> I was pretty good uh, just playing my whole life. But, but all of a sudden, this other football, man, I tell you, I fell in love with that. I had to play that. So were you a big kid then, or were you kind of – yeah, I was the size I am now as a freshman. Oh, God. 
Yeah, I went through uh, the changes early. So Damn. Uh, I was a big kid at a, as a freshman. Now today, I went to I went to a football high school football game the other day. I can't believe the size of these kids. There's no way I would have been able to play. But uh, back then, yep. Damn. I was a big kid. So they were like, yeah, come play football. Come play football with us. <laughs> don't, don't play the other football. Play this the one. Football. We need you. We'll only give you more brain damage. That's right. So, um, did you stay outdoorsy while you were in Colorado, or did that kind of fade away with just being back in the American routine? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, just with uh, the way that the American lifestyle is set up, it's not even back in the '90s. It was it's moving towards uh, not catering to, to being outside as much. I still um, was in a state where there's a lot to do outside, so. A lot of camping. I loved. We loved to do that. We we would go up to the uh, on the weekends. We'd go up to this place called Mount Hermon where all the kids went. We would camp out up there and do bad stuff. You know, drink beer and things in high school like you're not supposed to do. Bad boy. We'd bonfires and smoke weed and <laughs> generally be nuisances. But but as far as like the uh, uh, run around outside all the time anymore, it took on a new meaning because now there was. There was always a car. There was always shoes. Of course, you had to wear them. Could not wear them. Um, it's not like the rules. And, and of course, American rules are different. Like you can't just let your kids run around. Even back then, uh, now it's even more impossible with my children. I can't let them run around. Somebody's going to call CPS on me. So yeah. it really did alter the way that uh, I, I had to had to be. Some that part was kind of hard, actually. You know, it's funny because I was a late. 70s, early 80s, you know, I think I went to high school, mid 80s. So I've been watching a few reruns of old 80s TV shows and going, yeah, I remember that. You used to be able to go outside and just go explore, come back before the sun goes down. And then, yeah, something happened like in the early 90s that just changed it. My little brother didn't have that, that openness where he could just go explore as much. I agree. Uh, and it was the 90s when it started to change. I don't know if it was that incident with Columbine or mm, maybe. Um, but this idea of it, it wasn't safe. It wasn't allowed, you know, to let your kids be be kids and just be out and about um, kind of took over. Uh, so, so speaking I, of that, because Columbine was kind of close to Colorado Springs, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it's probably about 60 miles north of there. Were you still in school when that happened, or were you already out? No, I was out. Okay. I was gone. Yeah. Yeah, that was after the... I was gone already in the Navy, actually, at that point. So let's get to that. So you get back from this crazy adventure. that all, That's all you knew all your life, was living in these old Mayan villages with people who lived that village lifestyle. Then you get sent up to Colorado Springs which is a huge difference, obviously. Yeah, yes, it was. Snow, for, first of all, snow. Oh, I didn't even think about that, yeah. <laughs> so when do you remember your first inkling of going to, of wanting to go into the military? So that first period of time when I got back and realized, wow, this is my country, this is where my roots are, um, I had this like strong, powerful kind of love develop for America, the idea of it. And that there, this was a place that, um, you know, I came from a place where every single uh, 
bank had somebody with a, a machine gun in front of it. And, uh, you know, there was either you had money or you were begging on the streets. And so the idea that everybody around me had stuff and it was okay and you could pursue that and, and they, the cops weren't going to bribe you every time they pulled you over just because they thought you had money or, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much corruption in Guatemala. It was unbelievable. So the, I, I felt a sense of pride that this country was one that was good. It was wholesome. It was, uh, it was, it had the right ideals about, <clears throat> you know, how humans should live and uh, the idea that we're all free. Everybody had the right, <clears throat> excuse me, to pursue their own uh, riches if they wanted. You could come from nothing and become a millionaire. I love that. So uh, I had already begun kind of falling in love with, with America now that I was back. And, uh, and not only that, but, but exploding like I was and experiencing all of it was, was great. It was this fun experience. But I also realized, like, I wasn't prepared mentally like a lot of kids are groomed, like you're going to go to college, you're going to um, become so-and-so. I didn't really have like an idea of, of that. All of a sudden I realized I don't really know who I am. I'm this kid that kind of grew up overseas. Love that. That made me a strong person in so many ways, but it also made me kind of vulnerable. Right. Um, now I don't know what I want to do. So this idea of, well, I love my country and I can get, I can still join a military and do outdoorsy things and travel around is what was really appealing to me. I started thinking about it my sophomore year, actually, the year after I got there. Okay, so I got to make one statement and one question. The question is, how much did the Air Force influence you? Because you were in Colorado Springs, home of the Air Force Academy. And two, United States Navy, outdoorsy, doesn't seem to... <sighs> That's the point. <laughs> You're right. It was never the Navy. It was never the Navy at first. Uh, I was never going to be a, a sailor in my mind. I was right there. In fact, on the weekends, you're right. On the weekends, uh, we could. I lived literally a five-minute drive from uh, the Air Force Academy's Falcon Stadium. So on home games, we could go over there and for 10 bucks, get in and watch them play. And we used to do it every time they had a home game, right? So that there was a huge Air Force influence. The problem was um, that in order to become a pilot in those days, you either had to go to the academy or, or um, and, and that was the issue is I didn't have the grades. I just didn't have the grades to do it right to become a pilot. And then I wasn't really cut out to be a pilot. I was kind of a ground kid, right? So, so I, I naturally migrated and my uncle had been in the, in the Marines during Vietnam. So I naturally migrated towards the Marine Corps, <clears throat> which my mom was heavily trying to influence me away from. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I walked in and, and I talked to him in my sophomore year. And they said, well, what, you know, what, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what do you have? And they're like, well, we have the infantry. And I said, well, what does that mean? You know, I started doing some research. I'm still a smart kid. So I started reading, thinking about it and looking at it and, I had that that poster on my wall in high school. I don't know if you remember that one with the the Marine that's got like the the hemp cord hanging over his uh, shoulder, and he's got like an M4, and he's oh, all yeah. I think I think I, out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically, it's like this picture of this recon Marine, right? 
that they're using for for, for infantry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I started doing my research, and a lot of people were like, "Well, you know, the thing is, is if you want a career afterward, um, I talked to a lot of a lot of people around me. So if you want a career afterwards, you really need to think about going in and getting a job guaranteed right away." And so I said, "Okay, yeah. What what am I good at? This, that, and the other." And it just so happened that I took uh, my my high school offered a, a diving course, like a paddy diving course. Oh, nice! But in order to get certified, you had to be CPR certified. And so, just by coincidence, I took that CPR class, and I was like, "Wow, I really this I dig this kind of thing. Like, I could I could do this. I'm kind of a natural uh, kind of a caregiver anyway. Let me let me look at that." So uh, I went back to the Marine Corps recruiter. And they're like, oh, sorry, you got to go next door. We don't have medics. We get those from squids. And so <laughs> I was like, hmm, maybe, huh? He's like, well, there's a lot of corpsmen that serve with us, you know, uh, so you may get stationed with the Marines anyway. Anyway, long story short, I decided that I, I needed to have a career after I got out because initially I was only going to do four years or five because back then the, the commitment for corpsmen was five. And then I was going to move on. Um but I had too much of a wanderlust, man. All of a sudden, I got a taste of that moving around and seeing new places, and I, I had to have more. Nice. So how was your recruit? I, well, let me say this first. So our first guest, Joey, he was a FMF corpsman, lab tech, same exact story. Wanted to go Marines, had his heart set on it, then found out about medicine, and the Marine goes, next door. Next door. Yeah. And it's it's a funny thing that people still 2020, 20 years of war, and they don't get that the Marines do not have their own indigenous medical personnel. It is strange. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's super weird. So you go through the recruiting process. What was that like for you? Well, honestly, because I had so many people around me in an Air Force town uh, that I was friends with that had either... Uh, you know, military dads. And don't forget, Fort Carson is on the south side of that. So there's oh, all right. the influence in Colorado Springs too. So, and, and you know, my the one thing that my my father, uh, he was never very physically savvy at things, but he was all, he was very intellectual. And the one thing he knew is that I needed to talk to people before I went in. And so he made sure that I, he lined me up with all kinds of people that uh, I could talk to. And pretty much the message that came out of all of them was, you know, do your own homework and basically go in there, take the tests and then um, set your own agenda. Don't let them dictate to you what you're going to do. You tell them, this is what I want to do. They need you. So that's kind of what I did. I said, look, these are the jobs that I'm looking at. Right. And initially I was all excited because, you know, Chuck Sheen had come out with that, that movie, Navy Seals. Oh, you mean the documentary? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, I think that was the first reality show ever made was Navy SEALs. Yeah, probably. Probably. Uh, so, of course, every kid and their mom and their and, and their brother was excited about trying to get into this organization based on that movie. So I was no different. And so I looked up, here's the five or six rates that you need to be. And one of them was Corman. I was like, okay, cool. This jives. I'm going to go. I'm going to become a Corman. And... Uh, um, then somebody convinced me, nope, you need to be a gunner's mate. That was a recruiter. That was a recruiter. So that's the one thing he did. He got me on being a gunner's mate, right? So I said, okay, I'll, I, that sounds fun. He's like, well, you like, 
you want to be a SEAL, you want to work with guns and like learn all about how to gunsmith and well, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds like I'm working with my hands. I could do that. So initially I go to maps thinking I'm going to be a gunner's mate. But when I got there, weirdest thing happened. The guy was like, I don't know why they signed you up to be a gunner's mate. We're like overmanned in that and we're undermanned in corpsmen. So you're going to, you need to switch to become a corpsman. This is after I get the mess. I'd already raised my hand and everything. Right. So I was like, well, okay. I, that was one of the ones I wanted to choose. Uh, I guess I'm switching to corpsman. And, uh, Hilarious. I know, right? It came. His trick to trick you into going gunner's mate backfired and got you what you wanted in the first place. And the thing is, don't you think the recruiter should have known like gunner's mate was overmanned? He's basically not. Yeah, not he, he's just yeah. trying to push bodies at that point in time. That, that, that's it, right? It was. I think maybe that's something he wanted to do. I have no idea. He was an HP. So, oh well, he wanted to do anything but be an HT. And so people understand, uh, hall techs are basically over-glamorized plumbers for the Navy. On yes, board they are. Ship. Yeah. And think about it like this. Boats, ships have large storage facilities full of shit. Not, yeah. not just the birthing areas. That's true. And, 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 and you got to have respect for those guys because on a moving vessel back and forth, sloshing back and forth, they work in these spaces with this stuff. It's something else. Oh, yeah. The ones that get conned. Yeah. So uh, what year was this, by the way? Uh, I went in. I got held back when I first came up <clears throat> to uh, this Guatemala City because my mom was homeschooling me and I was behind. So I got held back, believe it or not, um, a couple years in school. And actually, I don't know, maybe that was a good thing for me. I didn't know at the time, didn't care. So I got held back. So I, I graduated in 94, even though I should have graduated a couple years earlier than that. Oh, okay. Um, and I had to make up some classes when I came to the States. So 94, and then I took the summer and I went to boot camp in September. Of 95? 94. Oh, 94. Okay. Yeah. So the reason why I asked that was you were still in the three boot camp scenario or were you yes there was yep there was three boot camps orlando was for females and there was san diego and great lakes so which one did they send you to i went to great lakes good for you that's the best boot camp in the world yes. when there was three it's now the shittiest boot camp in the world because there's only one <laughs> um so at least you went through september did you go to course school at great lakes yes i did so boot camp how was that as a culture shock to you uh, actually, boot camp wasn't really a big deal. I don't, I don't know why it was so stressful for some people, but, you know, growing up, I'd seen a lot worse conditions, whatever, uh, you know, people raise their voice. Okay. Big deal. <clears throat> I think I was a pretty confident kid just because of all the situations I'd been placed in as a child. So, um, you know, they taught me how to fold clothes really well. That was great. Uh, not uh, back then. They didn't even have the ship uh, at boot camp. So um, you were still in the people, barracks. What's that? You were still in the barracks then? We were still in the barracks. We were, I was way up in 900 or not 900, but uh, close to it. The, the farthest building from the chow hall that you could get, <laughs> which was like seven or 800 uh, yards or meters or whatever. Anyway, whatever. <clears throat> I remember that. Because 
the winter um, that was a that was a brutal winter man that was a, that was a, the hardest part for boot camp for me the rest so of it, when when did you guys so if you classed up in september so you I, graduated at the end of uh november yeah something like that right okay. around Thanksgiving. yeah i uh I think I've told you this before. January 27th, 1991 is the day I reported to boot camp from Southern California going oh, to Great Lakes. <clears throat> yeah, so that's... <laughs> I, I understand the winter. Yeah. Yeah. I learned how to shovel. That was so, part of the duty. Oh, damn. You don't remember I, that? No, because I was in the 900 company, so we were one of the quote-unquote... Oh, you guys were little you know, fairies running around with your flags. Hey. Don't rag on the flags. That was my company. <laughs> Better than being in the chorus or the uh, the band. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so you and I have a lot of experience with this, but I got to ask, what was your? How did you like your first time going to the gas chamber? Actually, I'm kind of a, everyone that. I, it, I was kind of excited about it because, um, you know, they were trying to hype it up, and I, at that point, I kind of learned that everything was a psychological game a little bit. So I was kind of excited about it, like nervous excited. I, I knew it wasn't going to be pleasant, but I knew I had to, I had to try this because I wanted the challenge, right? Like, am I going to do good or am I going to do bad? Because they're always talking about people crying and running out and being wusses. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm going to embrace this thing. And then uh, as soon as it hit me, I was like, okay, okay, okay. Oh, this really sucks. <laughs> and then like the 10 seconds passed and I was like, oh, no. It's not as bad as I thought. That was the worst of it right there. That was the worst of it. If it's just snot and eyes watering, I can handle this. So I don't know. It, it became, uh, and you know, since then I've done it thousands of times. So yeah. like me and gas get along great now. Yeah. You, you and I both have that, uh, that affinity for gas. I don't know why, man. I, it's like a drug. It is. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> You graduate back then, because now, obviously, because of what's going on in the world right now, there's no family coming up to see you. There's no post boot camp leave right now. Uh, their pass and review for the Navy is outdoors at a distance. So you've lost all that. Did you have your family come up and see you? Did you do leave after boot camp before going to core school? I uh, did no leave. Um, I did have family come up they were very proud so they wanted to come up and see me but they was only for like that weekend or whatever yeah you run around chicago and your little and your best blues yeah i was about to say whites but yeah you're you're your yeah, blues, I mean, your blues and, and your little um uh national defense ribbon right you're so proud of yourself yeah <laughs> and the thing is you don't what you don't realize is everybody in chicago sees this every weekend well i mean it's just like it's just like here in san antonio if you live downtown like i do you see yep. The Air Force guys, which has been weird for the last seven months. We don't see him anymore. Well, yeah, that is weird, isn't it? Man? Yeah. This year has been like a vacuum of humanity. Oh, yeah, and we're going to get to that. <laughs> so um, how how did your family take the whole idea of going into boot camp or into the Navy in general? Um, well, I didn't realize until after I'd retired that my mother, um, I knew she was taking it kind of hard um and also my, my dad was real proud but he was still engaged in traveling back down to guatemala he wasn't finished with his work yet 
Oh. It, took, it took him 19 years. So, uh, um, you know, he, he, he was still traveling back and forth. So for him, he wasn't seeing me anyway. And my dad's more of a logical, kind of less emotional type. He's a kind of philosophical guy. So my mom's the emotional one. But I didn't realize till years later, she told me, you know, the, the, the recruiter came and picked you up at four in the morning that morning. And she's like, then I got a box in the mail with no note with your clothes. And then basically you were just gone out of my life forever. You never came home again other than to visit us once in a while. And I never thought about it like that. Now that I have kids, like, wow, that's true. Like I just disappeared on her overnight. That's a crazy way of looking at it. I mean, I understand where she's coming from. And I totally understand her perspective. I would have never had that. That would have never clicked that that was the impact that it would have had. I wouldn't have either. To me, it was an adventure. I was about to set on, you know, and at that age, in the, in the, at that point in, in our historical timeline, kids didn't stay home with their parents. They went to college or they went and got a job. Yeah. You weren't sitting around your parents' house. There was an expectation that you were going to do something with yourself. So, Well, I wonder how much of that was you growing up in Guatemala and maybe what she saw down there was, you know, generational living in those little villages and thought that's maybe what it would have been. Yeah, it could very well be that, that and, I, and that's true. My, my mom had become indoctrinated into another culture so heavily. I mean, they even wore the, uh, the uh, traditional, um, each, of, each of those tribes down there has their own, um, I'm trying to say uniform, but it's not a uniform. It's their traditional cl- clothing, right? It yeah. denotes that they are this type of Indian, whether they're Kachikel or Kiche or Mom or another tribe, they, they wear certain colors. In fact, there's a, you can see behind me, the, the listeners can't see that, but that's the group of people that-, that Well, don't we worry, there's gonna be video too. Okay, well, that's- So that's, you're gonna look even better on video. But no, yeah, <laughs> I, I was looking at that, I could kind of see it over your shoulder. That uh, that's the group of people that we work with, and that's that colors of purple and red. Uh, so I have, most of my childhood, I wore that every day. Oh, wow. All of it. And uh, so, so for my mom, maybe she did. Maybe she became indoctrinated into this kind of generational living because you're right that the Indians did that. They very much took care of each other. Um, What's her? It was hard for her, though. So, real quick, jumping back to the Indians, um, the native side, did they have a like a warrior ethos or warrior culture to them? Like, did the men hold or did anything? You know what I'm trying to get at? Yes, uh, there definitely was. There definitely was. They, the men would leave and they would go up, up into the mountains. And and at that point, I don't ever know. I was never old enough or allowed to attend those things, and neither was my father. But I know that that journey was to go um, uh, make the young men into men, and there there was they had their own weaponry uh some of their stuff looked a lot like uh what you saw in that movie mel gibson made right so there's a lot of blow darts and uh uh, bow and arrow type weapons and there's even kind of a um uh uh, battle axe slash um 
The other side of it was like a hammer, but it was a ball, a big ball, almost like the what you see in Africa. Oh, okay. So, um, but the problem is, is that because the conquistadors came through, they they kind of removed this this culture from them, right? So, so that they really had nothing to be warriors for anymore. There was no inter-tribal warfare, which there was there was a lot of there was a lot of that in the Mayan uh, empire. Um, there was no idea of protect. I mean, they belonged to the country, right? And so the aristocrats kind of owned them. So they, they, they became and had settled into becoming farmers, basically hunters and gatherers. There wasn't a need to be a warrior anymore. They held on to that, but they've kept it very private. So they, they had their rite of passage for-, for Yeah, their absolutely team. did. I don't know what it is though, because I was not allowed to go through that. So do you think you took some of that with you when you came into the Navy? Some of that that you grew up with, that what you saw as a child? 100%. I was already running around being responsible at the age of five to protect goats with my fellow, you know, friends um, from any any animals that would come to, or or for them to get lost, you know? So, so that sense of having responsibility at a young age, and not only that, but not being afraid of the elements, being able to make a fire on my own, first of all, um, at a very young age, um, or, or feed myself, find sustenance, find water sources. All of that stuff was just an innate part of my, my young, young childhood. So I guess, you know, I didn't even realize that was, that was like setting me up for my later life in such a big way. I didn't even realize it. Yeah. It's kind of crazy how sometimes it's right there and you just don't even realize that that's your driving force. Uh, I, I appreciate it so much when I look back on it. Just that, that opportunity, that education that I had about the wilderness and how much I appreciate the outdoors when I get to be in it, you know? That, that's why I've taken up what I've taken up. It's I love being outside and really just being closer to nature. I think there's something very healing about that. There is. Uh, people don't, um, this is something that I believe in. People don't connect with the earth enough with their bare feet. Right, earthing. You get out That's of your shoes and walk around and get the, that energy coming from, from the earth. It's good for you. 100% agree. Let's go back to your story a little bit more. Don't mean to break off this subject, but I wanted to see if we tied something in to what drove you towards serving and it seems like it did a little bit um so you show up to core school was it everything you imagined no saying that kind of smart athlete but (laughs) no it wasn't um i don't know what expectation i had going into that i think i thought i was going to become more of a paramedic i guess Uh, but that I, I felt like it was a follow-on from boot camp a little bit. And a lot of, uh, I think, you know, the focus was on ship medicine. So there was a lot of standing watch. There was a lot of um, extraneous, this, that, and the other. And it was very superficial level of, of training. You know, um, not that the Navy doesn't do a good job. I think their medics or their corpsmen are, are are superb compared to the other services. However, uh, back then, uh, I mean, it was exciting. 
I was getting to stick needles in people uh, for the first time and IVs and shots and so forth. But when I left there, it was like, okay, my VA tour wasn't exactly the, the funnest thing in the world, right? Um, those, uh, just seeing, seeing those old guys at the VA in, in Waukegan, that was tough working on that, that on those wards. I was like, I don't know if I could do this all, all the time, you know? Yeah, no, I, I don't blame you. But see, something happened between when I went to core school and when you did. Because when I went to core school, it was still Naval Hospital Great Lakes that we did our time in on the actual Naval Hospital on NTC. And I think it was probably 94, 93 when everything changed and you guys started going out to the VA because they didn't send any of us out to the VA. We yeah, all- there was no hospital. It was, it was shut down. Yeah. I think the, I think it was in the final years because uh, that place looked like it needed to be shut down and at <laughs> least at least have a thousand exterminators go through it and kill all the rats. I believe it. I believe it. But so after core school, um, you leave probably like half of us were thinking that you're super corman. You can draw anyone's blood, do. Yes. You, you, the worst part to me, the worst part about core school is pharmaceutical math. That's now I think it's completely changed because you have a smartphone and probably 10 different apps to do all that. But um, leaving core school, where did you go next? Oh, so, so I, I omitted something. First, oh. first of all, when I went to MEPS, um, you know, I went there wanting to be a SEAL. So that was my, that, that was, I want to go to Bud's, you know. The, the, the doctors did the whole lineup, take off your clothes, line up, do your physical, this, that, and the other thing. Come to find out I'm colorblind. They're like, no, nope, you're disqualified. Me too. You cannot. I, um, by, their, by their regs, I'm colorblind yeah, too. Right. You cannot go to MEPS. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God. What am I going to do? I don't want to be a regular sailor. This is awful. I quit. Like, no, you can't quit. <laughs> you already raised your hand and signed on the dotted line. So I think I was going through a psychological process of trying to accept that. I even went out and did PT with the, with the dive mo uh, when I was at uh, core school. And for those of you that don't know what that is, that's like the prep for all the kids that are, that are going on to BUDS to become BUDS. Back then, at that time, all the SEALs had an actual Navy rate. They weren't just SEALs like they are today. So you yep. had to have a job, and then you could go to BUDS. And if, so, I, if I remember right, it was, uh, sorry for cutting you off. Um, it was Boatswain's Mate, Corman, Gunner's Mate, OS, and something else. Oh, yeah, Builder. Quartermaster was also one. I think Builder was one, too, one of the CB rates. Probably. Yeah, there was set, there was probably five to seven rates that that they cared about, and uh, other than that, they didn't need you. Like they didn't need HT guys. They right? didn't want a yeoman going to boat. No, they didn't need that. The ships needed yeomans, and and so HTs and uh, I think was it CT cryptological tech maybe. No, because I think they stayed. I mean, they played. I think they like they do today. They play with the seals, but I think they, I think they were always separate. Like that little intel side stayed on it because cts weren't cts back then you're right you're right i forget that yeah you're right um all right so <laughs> anyway i still held on to this hope pt with those guys during course school then afterward um i don't know if if the early 90s uh 
and the Gulf War. Um, Cause remember I just missed the Gulf War. So yeah. I didn't get to deploy. I got the little ribbon saying that I was in during that time, but it didn't really count because I didn't deploy to the Middle East. I was going through school. Yeah, I mean, I, post. I, sh I showed up to boot camp, camp four days after the air war started. There you go. So you basically showed up in the air war and then it was over. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we had, we had um, two, I think I, I always get this wrong, but I think we had two SEALs. One was in my class and one was in the class coming up behind us for core school who were cross rating because they had learned that they needed more uh, corpsmen in the SEAL teams. So like we had one guy that graduated my boot camp or my core school class for sure that had his trident. Gotcha. Okay. And and had a combat action ribbon. So it was like the coolest guy in the world. Like you ever combat. Right. Yeah. Everybody worshiped. And <laughs> and you know, our instructors were all FMF corpsmen. Um so you yeah. know, because no one knew what was gonna happen. Like this is a it was a ceasefire. So could it kick off again? Yeah. No one knew. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So were your instructors at core school, were they uh, combat vets or were they FMF guys or were they just all straight fleet guys? Uh, the only person that was um, an FMF guy was the dive mo. The nurse, let's see, I had HO1 Van Lu. I had Lieutenant Commander, I can't remember her name now, but uh, we had a nurse, I had all females. Oh, and so wow. Yeah, I didn't have any male core school instructors. And as a result, they had just moved all of the Orlando people up there. And so I think there was like this huge shuffle. And somehow there was a, a ton of female instructors while I was there. Well, because uh, I don't, again, I don't know if it happened during when they shut down the boot camp in San Diego, but there used to be two core schools too. There used to be one in San Diego and one in Great Lakes. Correct. Yes. But I think the one in Great Lakes was all male, right? And the one in... No, no. We we had uh, females at our core school. We had a couple who got married halfway through core school because they had yes, met each other every, six weeks earlier. That, right? Everybody yeah. had that go on. The, <laughs> but, the core school marriage, right? Yeah. So I, I was just trying to like figure out when they shut down Balboa as a core school. If it ha You may have only had it, one core school at the time. We were, it was it was the only one. I think it was probably the year or two before. I think it was '92 that they shut down. Oh, okay. That one. Um, there was just too many shenanigans. I mean, they even had a bar in the barracks at the San Diego, and so we heard all the stories. We were jealous, you know. But anyway, um, so now I I didn't have any influence for any FMF or other than the dive motivator guy, Chief Khan, and. Uh, you know, he was kind of the only one that we would all gravitate to to ask questions and stuff about okay. that because everybody else was focused on nursing. Yeah, which I I hated it. I hated the idea because I thought it was going to be something completely different going through core school, much like you. But looking back, I, I have to say it, it helped. It actually helped me in the way I thought about the patients I dealt with. Even though I was with the CBs and the Marines, I never spent any time in the hospital except as a patient. See, and I think because of the time that you guys went through, they implemented uh, a difference. When I went through core school, there was a mandatory 18-month follow-on period where you had to go to a hospital, a training hospital, and do rounds. 
And so um, there was no going to FMF right after core school or um, a duty station. It was, hey, you're going to an MTF and you're going to do your rounds and get checked off as a corpsman um, because we're realizing that we're, we're not giving the fleet what they need in terms of a, a full, well-rounded person. So I actually look back now, and at first I was like, man, this is delaying my plans. This is terrible. But uh, I think that that time that I spent in the hospital was invaluable to me becoming a better corpsman later, uh, especially with aftercare, not just trauma, but we're talking aftercare of trauma patients too. So uh, I went to Naval Hospital Charleston to answer your question. We got kind of a... Yeah, no, it's fine. Take uh, your time uh, to get around it. <laughs> Naval Hospital Charleston, and uh, and that's where I started doing my rotations. You know, every, uh, I can't remember, six weeks or something, they would send you. But they focused a lot on, like, ward time, ICU, um, labor and delivery, the ER. Um, you were lucky. Like, if you went to the lab or pharmacy or something, that was only because you were interested in becoming a tech, right? They, they questioned everybody on that. So I spent a lot of time on the ward and uh, EMS, and I got a lot of, uh, after you did your rotations, you got to choose, hey, where do you wanna go work? And if there was an opening there, they would, they would allow it, right? So I said, well, I really enjoyed the ambulance. And so for whatever reason, a lot of people didn't like that. Um, they didn't, uh, and, I, and it was because at the time, Naval Hospital Charleston uh, had this unique advantage where they were providing mutual aid to the city. So they actually had a section of Goose Creek that they uh, would run calls for uh, the Charleston uh, EMS system, like civilian calls. So was was it naval base Charleston or what was in Charleston? The naval base had just shut down. So um, the the hospital was there providing support to the naval base, but it had not shut down yet. It was on its way to becoming a giant VA clinic, which it is today. Oh, okay. Okay. But the naval station had just shut down, but the nuclear power training facility was still there for the submariners. Oh, okay. So all the students that were going to submarine had to go through uh, the nuclear power training facility. And so they still had active reactors in subs there. Um, and so the hospital had, was still open uh, for that facility to run, um, as well as uh, the continuation of the shutdown. Of the, of the naval station that was still happening. Oh, okay. That uh, that makes more sense now. Yeah. So I, I was trying to remember what the hell was in Charleston back in the nineties. Yeah, mean, it wasn't. That was when a lot of shit shut down too, though. And it was it was in the worst part of the city. Oh my goodness, man! I can't remember. I went. Um, this is my first experience with with anything to do with with racism at all, man. I I walked out the gate and somebody somebody was like on the way out. They were like. You sure you want to do that? And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, walk. I said, I'm just going to get lunch. I have an hour. I'm good. And there was a Burger King like around the corner or whatever. And I headed over there and <clears throat> a bunch of dudes came up to me. They're like, what are you doing? This, this Burger King ain't for you. And I was like, I'm just getting lunch. And then they proceeded to whoop my ass. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> because that North Charleston was not for, for white people, apparently. <laughs> Damn. I know, right? But I, again, that my bringing up, I didn't, I was not exposed to that kind of thing uh, 
when I, as, a, as a young person. And then Colorado didn't really have that kind of a drama. So going, going to Charleston was also a wake-up call for me to know about uh, some of those other issues in America that are so prevalent today now. Yeah, that's crazy now, that that you that that happened to you. Were you were you in like uniform or were you in PT? Group? I was in uniform. Yeah, I was in uniform. Oh, geez. I, it was probably an opportunity. Like they they were probably salivating to get their hands on some kid. Yeah, walking some, out of those gates, they got it. <laughs> boot sailor. Yep. So oh. you did the EMS stuff. Yeah, uh, it was awesome. Did you go? Because I think back then they you were able to get your paramedic or not your paramedics, but your EMT license, right? Absolutely. Yep. And in fact, uh, you could get all the way up to paramedic uh, at the time if you wanted, because because we were running civilian calls, we had to have an ACLS unit. Okay. So we had people working in the um, um, Jim Brogdon and Mark Petronas and some other people that are still out there doing work for Wounded Warriors today. They they all became paramedics and uh were able to run we had a medical director as well the whole thing was set up just like a civilian system oh, okay i got to see all kinds of stuff that would set me up for later i mean i-95 uh the traffic accidents were horrible on i-95 so lots of trauma lots of uh you know diabetes and uh cardiac calls and all kinds of stuff domestics Knife and gun club, the whole nine. So, so you saw the whole, the whole spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was even in, involved in a um, shaken baby case. Got to go to the court, testify on that. Um, I, I had a world of experience. I'm really, it really set me up as a corpsman. It was really good for me. So then, after you did that, what happened next? Okay, so after that, what happened next is uh, my my hormones took over and a girl entered my life. Yeah. Right. So, so again, turn left instead of keep going straight on your path, Shep. <laughs> did you, I mean, did you still think that there would be some way that you could get into buds colorblind and all? Yeah. At this okay. point, but then she comes into my life and of course she's the greatest thing ever. So she shows up. Uh, and I, and I'm like, ah. so she alters my plans. She decides it's best if we get married and I don't do that. And we, and we go overseas. And so I was like, okay, you know what? I grew up overseas. I love traveling. Let's go overseas. And it just so happened at the time, Europe was just open. So instead of going to FMF school, or back to buds, which they wouldn't have accepted me anyway, because I was still colorblind. Um, <laughs> I got there's ways uh, around that. Well, I learned that later. Uh, <laughs> my next duty station, actually, which is how I got into into the recon school. So uh, we we got stationed in Naples, Italy, and I I think that just out of sheer uh, interest and travel. Um, that was probably my favorite duty station just because it was like on government's dime. I got to live in Italy and travel and see all of Europe and uh, experience all those things that people pay thousands of dollars to do, you know, um, and yet still work at the hospital there. It was great. What rank were you at the time? Uh, let's see. At the time, 
I got there, I was uh, HM3, so I was an E4. Okay. And I made five while I was there. Nice. And then I stayed five for like ever. So this was 90... This was like 90, 90. So I ended up staying longer uh, at Charleston than originally planned because of the EMS thing. So I did a full duty station there. Oh, okay. So it was 96. Or it was 96 or 97 when I went to uh, Italy. Yep. So you get to Italy, and I feel like you're coming up on the end of your first four years here pretty soon. Yep, that's true. While you were in Italy, did the thought of not re-enlisting ever cross your mind? Well, then all of a sudden, uh, this new uh, program came out. It wasn't new, but it was new to me, the PA program. And all of a sudden, I was like, ooh. It's that old? What's that? It's that old? Yeah. I was like, ooh, I, I think I want to apply for this. And so I started looking at it, and they're like, nah, you don't have the prereqs, but you got to start going to college. And so um, that's when I thought to myself and discussed it with the then wife, the practice wife, um, that I should start going to college. And they had a UMUC, University of Maryland uh, University campus uh, in, in uh, Europe. They had them all over the place, an actual campus where you went to school. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, in class. Yeah, distance learning wasn't a thing at that point. In time. No, no, it wasn't. So University of Maryland had a, a, a campus there in Naples. And so I started taking classes and realized I'm going to re-enlist because I want to try to go for this officer program. And uh, I want to be a PA someday. So um, started doing that. I, and also every... Uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but every um, overseas hospital has a platform and it's either a ship that you're assigned to or some kind of response team. Like if you need to wrap, if the hospital has to rapidly support an, an AO or area of operational, uh, you know, set yeah, of marines or whatever. So I have of responsibility. Yep. So I got onto the surgical response team. And part of that was because of my background in the EMS and all the stuff I had done and uh, in, in working in the ICU in Charleston. So I qualified for that because they only had a few corpsmen on that. It was supposed to be rapid deployment within 72 hours and uh, 50 surgeries. We'd set up and they, they would be able to conduct 50 surgeries. And so um, I got to de deploy twice with that, which really wet my whistle even more. Uh, one time was a training exercise up in uh, Latvia with uh, the uh, Estonian, Latvians, and Lithuanians, and uh, that was really cool. We basically did a bunch of drills. Um, uh, you know, they were trying to get NATO certified at the time. And then the second one was the big earthquake in uh, Izmit, Turkey. There was a ma major earthquake in the 90s in Turkey, and so we were the closest thing to it and uh turkey asked for the u.s help and they sent us in there that was quite an experience it really was they set us up on a soccer field and uh they just kept bringing us uh patients you know that they, they were finding in the rubble and uh we'd do surgery on them and set them up and so you you got a lot of humanitarian uh time out of that deployment then i sure did yep yep i did and then and then I don't know if it was like divine or not, but uh, came home one day and 
there was a big hole in my wall of the, the um, place I was living. And this was kind of a common occurrence, right? And so I went in to my place where I was living. They would give, would give you cola. I don't know if you, if you ever went overseas. No, not, not permanent. Yeah, so you got you got like this uh, um, monetary adjustment to live overseas because the cost of living was different. They called it COLA, cost of living adjustment. And so we were actually making pretty good money as E5 over there. Oh, I can bet. Yeah, exactly. Married E5, yeah, I can bet you were making Yeah, the place, the place that I rented to live, and you can't live out in town anymore in Italy because they they've built a whole base where there's like on-base living now. But back then, you could live out in town. And uh, I was literally, like, on this hill looking over the ocean. It was amazing. Like, there's no way that, yeah. you know, it, it was it was living way beyond my means at the time. E5 so, Mafia living large. That's right. That's right. But uh, when you were gone, the, the local uh, people would, would uh, rob you. And they would just take a truck and, like, bang it into the side of your wall oh a hole and then they would take all your crap it was pretty funny it was actually pretty hilarious the way they did it they would literally just back a truck into the into your house and then take all your stuff <laughs> so anyway i come home there's a big hole in my wall i'm like oh no i got robbed and sure enough i went in there's like a love seat and a uh, a carpet on the floor but turns out it was fake it wasn't me getting robbed. It was just my wife leaving me. Oh. I know, right? So. Ouch. <laughs> ouch, right. It, at the time, I was pretty devastated, but in the, end of, in the end, that was the best thing. We were not compatible. And I was too young. I shouldn't have been getting married at that age anyway. Anyway, I, I have not laid eyes on her since then. So you have no idea where she just disappeared off into Italy? Oh, no. I know she went back to Michigan because that's where I got, finally got the divorce papers in the mail from. Oh, okay. Okay. Damn, man. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what happens after... Okay, well, like I said, you were... At the end of your eight Naples tour, you would have been pretty close to re-enlistment time. Um, yep. Did you ever have a thought about not re-enlisting? Yes. Yep, I kind of, after, after, obviously, I'm laughing about it now, but that was hard for me when she left because uh, I didn't quite understand what the hell happened. Turns out that there was uh, uh, the security guards were all like ex-Buds guys, and they were more interesting than me. So the, uh, part of me, this is where psychology is so interesting, right? Part of me is like, okay, I'm going to show her. But part of me was like, um, nah, I think I'm going to get out and go to college I really wrestled with that for a while. And then I thought, mm, I still have a wanderlust and I still haven't accomplished this goal of getting to the Marines and actually being what I consider a soldier or a warrior, you know, and that was, I don't know why, but I had this need in me that there was this important part. And, and this kind of gave me this fuel, this psychological, I'm going to show you that, you know, type of thing. I, I used that anger as fuel. And so was, there was, uh, um, there was two guys in Naples that were former um, Anglico and one was a recon dude. And they were, uh, uh, I don't know if it was like, I'm not sure why he was there actually. He was on his retirement um, leg. I don't know if he was in, uh, 
in disrepute or something to the community, but I remember it was Senior Chief uh, Graham. Uh, there's two Senior Chief Grahams in the community, but this one was a different one. And uh, and he and he talked to us just like a, a recovering too. Like, hey, I got a question about motherfucker run a mile. Then come ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved it though because. Uh, all of a sudden, I was like, man, this is the kind of dude I want to be around right here. He had a sense of humor. They'd always go to the Brit pub on Friday night. And uh, so, anyway, I, I made the decision, you know, this is my chance to get to do what I wanted to do before I got married. So, I re-enlisted and uh, worked to get into the pipeline. And at this point, orders came through, and I didn't have a choice. It was one of those type of things. So hey, did you... you did go you ahead. know ahead of time that you were going to go the recon community before you even went to field notes? So interesting story. Uh, this is how I came to that conclusion. Backing up to that earthquake. Um, they first flew us out to the USS Kearsarge, which then uh, deployed us via helicopter into Turkey. And then we came out onto that vessel as well. At, for whatever reason, at that time on the Mew, they, they had SEALs on the Mew at the, at the same time as, as recon folks. And I don't know if they were the senior like SOC element because there was no uh, SOCOM element to Marine Recon at the time. But I got a chance to like talk to both of those communities on the, on the boat. And I'll never forget like uh, the SEALs basically had no time for me they were like yeah whatever I, I i don't need to be talking to you they basically blew me off right it was it was they answered a couple questions but then it was like hey hey kid i got i got stuff to do go away but the recon guys were they spent time with us like they seemed to be more humble and uh that left a huge first impression on me about what um what kind of people i'd be around and I thought to myself, I don't know about those guys, man. Those seals, they kind of think they're holier than now a little bit. I don't know if I want to be around dudes like that. I might not. I, I don't feel like I'm that way. So um, that's kind of what influenced me. And then the follow-on when I was in, when I got back talking to uh, Senior Graham, you know, he was a recon guy. I didn't have any other seal influences around. Oh, and by the way, at this point, I had already figured out how to go into CHCS and manipulate my um <laughs> colorblind status <laughs> i was actually gonna say i know a lot of people who ended up just memorizing the uh isochromatic cards the, yeah the I, ones that you have the numbers on but they they had three different books oh they memorized all of them yeah i wasn't I, that smart man see so i that's still an apple dragger i i can see colors like i can see that that's navy blue behind me and gold and all that shit and red and all this but seeing those fucking numbers in the goddamn circles. No, that's they, they do that in a way that's just ridiculous, dude. Yeah, I'm just like, I nothing. It I, really is a, a true test of whether or not you can see contrast, right? Yeah. But but see, it's not a real test about whether or not operationally you can see the difference between two wires. Yeah. And fast forwarding a bunch of years, I've been through all the demolition courses. I've never had a problem with which wire was what color. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it's not a real, I, 
that to me is not a real characteristic of, uh, you know, what, and even on knots, red, green, you see, I mean, it's. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing is, so when I went through MEPS, because I originally wanted to go anti-submarine warfare, be air crew, and didn't pass the isochromatic cards, but they gave me a second chance with the lantern test, the red, green. Yes. And got a hundred percent on that. Yeah. So it was like, you told me I am red, green deficient with those stupid circles. Yeah. But yet. <laughs> but, but you fail. Yeah. I know. There was no, at, uh, at MAPS, there was no, for me, there was no lantern. They didn't give me that chance. So. I think, it, I think my recruiter, he was a uh, air warfare or he was in aviation rate. I forgot which one, but I think he like knew someone who pulled some strings. But again, when it all happened and said and done, Corman was a way to go. Yeah, but looking back on it now, too, I'm really thankful because uh, if I had gone to Bud's right out of boot camp and core school, I know for a fact that psychologically and physically, I don't think I would have made it through. Well, you know what? You could have been one of those guys that your wife, your ex-wife wanted to go hang out with, you know, because yeah, maybe, but yeah. no, I just know, I just know having gone through the, the recon pipeline now, just physically yeah. what it takes, that uh, I probably would not have made it through Bud psychologically at that point in my life. What what I was making fun of was the fact that, uh, as we called them in field med, Bud's duds, they couldn't even make it through Bud's. <laughs> it's just, right. We thought we're the cool guys. And I, I did too. They had been somewhere I hadn't had been there, done something I hadn't done yet. Right? For all you knew, they were, for all you knew, and I'm going to try to blow this up out of proportion, they were first day drops. <laughs> Yes, you have no idea, right? Mm -hmm. How far they made it. So <laughs> you get these new orders that you were saying, what, that you had no choice in them? No, all of a sudden, um, oh, and I, and, and I failed to mention, I got to go, uh, um, this is, I don't know why I failed this one. This was also kind of an eye-opening experience. I got a chance to go to Kosovo uh, during that oh, period of time, too. That's right. I was going to ask you about that, and I could they slipped my mind because that yeah, conflict that is so forgotten. That that was pretty awful. We we just we did a lot of watch to um, on on either perimeters or or say like um, they had they had basically like these invisible borders, and you would set up a check station at like one of these border crossings where where the tribal lines basically, and they would just shoot over you. It was crazy. It was like you were in the middle and you couldn't shoot back. There was no uh, engaging of anything. You just had to sit there and watch it. It was, it was really, it was awful. That was, that was eye-opening to me. That, that was, uh, that was about as eye-opening as anything that's ever happened in my life. Just watching that, the kind of hatred that those people had for each other and, uh, and the falling apart of, of, you know, that society basically no i mean really it was awful because all we were there to do is was was check people in and out and i don't even know i, I honestly still to this day they called a peacekeeping force i, I don't know what peace we provided so were you there in a was the guys that you went over there with was that in a medical capacity or was that in a, like a security support oh capacity? it was a, hey we need people to deploy and i volunteered i said hey i'd love to I'd love to go from the hospital since I was on a platform and he showed up uh, 
in Germany and they basically did some hodgepodge training, put you in camis, and then threw you out there with the unit, right? So I was with a bunch of Marines. And of course, I hadn't been through FMFS, FMSS yet. Um, it, that's what they called it back then. So this was kind of like my introduction through fire to the Marine Corps, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, they, they did not um, treat me any differently than they had no... Some of these Marines, I think, don't have any clue how corpsmen get trained anyway. Yeah. So they still called me Doc, and I loved it. You know, that, that part of it I loved. Um, sitting around the camaraderie. I mean, that was my first real taste of it. But, uh, but the actual events going on around us were, were pretty gross. So um, knew, knowing I wanted to go to the Marines and knowing that I wanted to put in a pipeline, I was doing that with uh, Senior Graham, and then all of a sudden orders came in for me. And they were early. It was like at the, oh, I would say 24-month mark. And so um, I got called up to, to the admin area, and they're like, hey, we got, we got orders for you. You're going to 29 Palms. And uh, I guess there was a shortage of corpsmen or something. So I was like, oh, man. And so, so this during was the, the Naval Hospital. What's the, that? This was through the Naval Hospital, not to No, no, this is to Marines. Oh, okay. So I was going to go through California FMSS and then go to 29 Palms. Oh, okay. So basically, Senior Graham was like, hey, this is your chance now. You put in a recon package. It might, because of the manning numbers, it might supersede your orders you just got. So he made a phone call. I put in the package and they're like, yep, you're going to recon. So instead of going to 29 Palms, I went to FMSS and then checked in at first force to be a roper in California. So let's go through your FMSS experience. Okay. So you leave Naples and now you end up in, did you stay going at California or did you go to? Okay. Thank God. I feel bad for those guys in Camp Lejeune. Yeah, me too. Um, (laughs) If you've ever been to North Carolina during the summer, you'll understand why I feel bad about those guys. So you show up into beautiful ocean slime, California. Yeah. Uh, was it still was down? Cool. In, was it was the schoolhouse still down in twenty two area at the time? By the uh, uh, twelve 20, docks 21, by the marine. Twenty one area. Del Mar. Yeah. Twenty one area. Yep. And um, let's see. It was right by the Yatya's boat house, yep. right there in the little basin, or just up the hill from it. That is. Yeah. Still was there. Uh, I think it's still there, isn't it? Did they yeah, move? I mean, unless they've moved in the last four or five years. I think they built a new building, but it's still in the same location. But yeah, my experience was uh, exactly what I thought it would be. Um, and by this point, I had gotten, Graham had gotten me in the shape I'm supposed to be in. So I had already, I mean, I was running marathons on the regular in Italy. So by the time I got to FMSS, any of the physical stuff was like, at that point in my life, I was probably in the best physical shape other than after uh, the pipeline. What about the, uh, what about the education side? I mean, you were already doing EMT paramedic shit. Oh, no. So, so, so for those at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but FMSS was not about medicine. That, that school to me was about indoctrinating you to becoming a Marine. Right. We same same with us. It's just we had towards like the tail end. We were learn. You were learning more like uh, IV stuff that you weren't learning in core school and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, field field work, 
yeah. stuff where you could hook it up to your rifle or, you know, improv a, uh, a stick, you know, outside type stuff. A lot of that, that w- was already common sense to me, but working outside in a more dirty environment, um, pressure dressings, you know, they weren't even focused on tourniquets at that point when I went through. At yeah, because you, you, that was what, 98? 90, yeah, there 90, was no focus on, and there was no TCCC. It was basically, um, you know, pre-hospital medicine, but geared towards the military. So there was still, you know, put pressure, then put pressure dressing on it. Um, but the idea of stopping bleeding with a tourniquet still wasn't there yet. And um, this is at the time that uh, uh, Dr. Butler was, was simultaneously developing TCCC. So we wouldn't have learned it. But I, I felt like t- I felt like it was more um, learning how to live and be a Marine than it was medicine. Um, and, and that was probably good for some people, like some of the lab techs and stuff and some of the softer folks mentally that we're going through. They needed to understand and learn how Marine culture works. Um, to me, it was kind of fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, and so whatever. Well, at least you were back outdoors more. I was back outdoors. Yep. See, I didn't go through field med till 2004 when I came back in because with the CBs, you didn't have to have the 8404. So me coming in in 2004 was a whole different world than you in 98. I I know for a fact your hikes were a lot longer than what they put us through. Oh, yeah, but yeah. even those were, I mean, the pace wasn't even, I don't know. I'm saying I think it's that. relative. Yeah. It's totally relative because there was people that really struggled. In fact, I remember, you know, literally getting behind some folks and, and just pushing, you know, or having people hold on to my, my rucksack on the back as I'm moving up the hill. Um, uh, there's this one hill that goes up from the base camp at FMSS where they train. And it's pretty steep. It's probably, I don't know. You remember that one? I, what were you guys? And then you go up, you hit this plateau at the top, and that's probably I want to say a thirty-five degree incline. Were you that. were you guys still training at the little training site off of the main road that comes? Yes. In? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember that one because I had to do that in Mop Four. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. And then they had like a, a machine gun course down below there. We had to low crawl under barbed wire, and they had you know fake, fake. Uh, mortars that would come in uh and uh blanks that shoot blanks over your head whatever see we um, didn't we didn't have that part we had the low crawl but we didn't have the pyro going on oh, really yeah but we had the uh the gas chamber that was like gas chamber 30 or 40 for me by that yeah, point in time. right because <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean the, the the difference between your experience with gas which was the recon side in mine was with the CBs. I was the NBC corpsman, so I got gas quite regularly. Oh yeah, you'd already at this point you'd already had a lot more gas than me. Yeah. Um, so now going back to being in shape, I know for a lot of guys going through the pipeline, um, their runs, their pull-ups, their push-ups are dead on. But a lot of people, including a couple of the guys that we mutually know swim was an issue how were you with the swim well um prepared at that point or did you understand the importance of this of swim yes so the swim itself um i had no problem with i don't know why but i was always kind of natural in the water 
with with swimming slick okay now the thing that i was not prepared for was the camis and the fins okay i had never practiced that i mean graham senior graham gave me some in the pool in italy but but to the extent that you needed it to to, to push through uh water that was moving i.e ocean open open water ocean with gear i was not prepared for that 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 took me i had to really push that almost got me actually during amphib phase um if it, if it wasn't for just sheer will i think i might not have made it you know and teamwork there's some dudes that would just not let anybody give up in, in my class nice so so you before we get ahead of ourselves because I think I, I think I may have jumped us a little time jump. You finished FMSS, then showed up to First Force. Yep. So you went, was BRC for you formalized or was it a uh, It was, in-house? my pipeline was formalized. I had actual orders to every school, but there was a time gap between FMSS and when I was supposed to show up to BRC. And so what they did with those, with any student that was going to become a, uh, 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 BRC or a recon candidate, they would send them to either um, Margarita 33 area where uh, um, recon battalion was, or they would send you to 41 area and uh, where first force was to train. And I guess at the time, recon battalion, because that really, to be honest with you, in my opinion, if you're going to become a roper, which is basically like a, a plebe uh, or, uh, you know, FNG. For, you know. Well, I, I I never went through this aspect of your world, but from what I've seen and talked to other recon Marines, it's FNG would not be the right word. It would be FNG until I decide you're no longer the FNG. Type yeah. Of yeah. No, it, it's definitely like um, organized hazing. Yeah. Yeah. But but you know, the thing is, is if you embrace it and you understand and you understand it, uh, it can be a lot of fun at the same time. Like it was, it was, it was a suck fest, but at the same time, I was embracing the fact that this was going to be my new culture, my new community. And so, uh, I think my attitude going into it was I'm going to embrace every second of this. And I think, um, uh, some of the dudes that were hazing me, they even, kind of enjoyed it uh that oh, i was of course enjoyed somewhere. it <laughs> oh okay no for real like uh, matt franco was one of my one of the dudes that um uh hazed me as a roper and you know he he later went on to become an over the fence guy with the army so he was a uh, he was a pretty hardcore guy and i remember i remember he'd get me in the back 40 behind 41 area over there and we would we would go at it man he we, and it, it was pretty good. Master Chief, uh, I don't know if, if you remember Master Chief Fitzgerald. I remember that name? I know the name, and I'm trying to... He was kind of a legend in uh, in the recon community, but he was a West Coast dude. So, and, and you know, uh, for whatever reason, when when you go FMSS, when you go to the Marines, you, you either go to the East Coast or the West Coast, and pretty much stay there. It's very rare that you cross over, right? Or you'll go to do a tour to Okinawa, but then you'll usually come back to the West Coast. Um, it's so 
it's no different. And it's even, I think it's even worse in the uh, recon community. You get stationed one coast or the other and you don't move. Yeah. You stay there. So those are the people you end up kind of learning and knowing about. Um, but anyway, I remember one day we were doing some training and, and uh, Master Chief Fitzgerald, um, he's a crusty old, I mean, I'm talking Vietnam era, you know, recon Marine. So he's the real deal. And he, he was talking about some backboard training. And I was, of course, in the, in the rest easy position because you never stand around and pick your nose. You're always with your hands behind your back with your rope on, listening, watching. So explain the rope real quick. Yeah, the rope, the rope is uh, part of our toolkit, right? So you always have it on. You, you, you tie it in a, in a little waterman's knot and you wear it around your, your neck and around to the back here. And uh, they call you a roper because anybody running around in training always has this rope on. And why? Because you can use it as a Swiss seat to um, repel or to climb. Um, and you can use it to practice your knots. You can use it for, uh, uh, you know, as a weapon if you need it. But point being, you always had that rope on you because at any point in time, somebody could ask you, hey, I want to see this knot. I want to see that knot. And if you didn't get it right, they could haze your ass, right? Because in school, you had to get those knots right specifically for reasons. Uh, so making uh, rope ladders to cross obstacles, uh, you know, rappelling, climbing, couldn't get it wrong. So that that's what the rope was about. And everybody knew when you had the rope on that you were a student in training and they could mess with you if they want, which is half the fun too. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, oh, it's lunchtime? Go get me a dirt sample from the top of, you know, the, the mountain. So, yeah, <laughs> yes, Gunny. So you'd run up there and get a dirt sample and they'd be like, well, I didn't tell you it needed to have rocks in it. You go get me a clean dirt sample, you know, <laughs> but again, there's a lesson in that, right? There's a lesson in that. I didn't, I assumed something instead of clarifying instructions. So that, that whole process, I understood that there was a, there was a, a means to the end and I loved it. I loved every second of it. And, you know, going back up that mountain, I was going to see something cool. There was either going to be a tarantula or a snake or something. Cause you know, it was the California wilds up there. Yeah, the, the the snake thing was incredible in Camp Pendleton. Yep. Uh, too many, too many snakes. So basically, what you're saying is, this is your, as you're wearing this rope, you're kind of going through a rite of passage in its own way. Absolutely, it is definitely a rite of. It's definitely a warrior rite of passage, as as much as any culture would have it. You know, bees on the chest, or go kill a lion. This is a rite of passage and you're getting, it's, it's physically and, and emotionally draining. Uh, you lose a lot of sleep. Um, you, you have to start, you have to learn how to deal with physical pain in terms of blisters or, you know, um, ITB, you know, you're, 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 uh, and that's, that's a medical term for when you get that stitch on the side of your knee from, from too much overwork in the front of your leg. You know, almost everybody uh, graduated ends up with I, you know, ITB. That's they used to call it. I tried BRC because everybody would get it. <laughs> so, did you feel that the? Uh, I don't want to say picked on more, but did you feel that the corpsman 
maybe were pushed a little bit harder because they weren't Marines? Or... And, I, and I embraced it. I thought it was, I thought it was the right attitude because we had not ever become a Marine. We were not part of that, that, uh, culture. we never went through the Q course or not the Q course, excuse me, the, um, crucible. Uh, so there can say I'm crossing over some of my future stuff right there now, <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I embraced it. I, um, I never took offense to it. I thought it was good for us. And I thought that they, uh, in the end, I thought I was respected more for embracing it too, to be honest with you. So let me ask you this. I mean, this is a personal pet peeve of mine, but I want your take on it. How do you feel about the, uh, the sailors who went uh, Marine regs? And... I never did it. I never did it. I, I didn't, in my opinion, I wasn't a Marine. I didn't earn that title. And, um, so I, I didn't understand what it meant to go Marine regs. I mean, pretty much, I pretty much my haircut had to be Marine regs anyway. I mean, they, you know, especially as a roper, they were, they were always telling me, you know, you're going to shave your head or half your head or whatever, you know, yeah. do, do this, that or the other. But I, I didn't quite get the psychology behind that. So, so people know Marine regs is when a sailor assigned to a Marine Corps unit chooses to basically add a second sea bag of the Marine Corps uh, service uniform and the Marine Corps, is it the, Al I always get those backwards. No, it's the Bravos. The Bravos. They were never allowed to wear the Alphas. So the yep. green jacket with the yep. khaki top and tie. And it's really, in my opinion, pretending that you are a Marine. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, that corpsman, that corpsman rank looks weird on that. Um, on the, on the floor. It's not meant to be there, right? right? So I just, I felt like you said, I felt like it was pretending to be something that you weren't. I never yeah. did. No. So. And it didn't logically make sense because he had to buy all the extra uniforms. Well, I, I hated carrying around one seat bag. I didn't want to deal with having to right? be ready for a second. I know. Maybe we're just not, oh, and, so, and so not only did you have to wear the uniform and have the appearance of a Marine, but you also had to run the Marine Corps PFP. Yeah. And that was much harder than the Navy one. So a lot of corpsmen couldn't uh, do well in that one, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, because the, the biggest difference between the Navy and the Marine Corps PFT is we do sit-ups and they do uh, pull-ups. Yep. And if you're not in pull-up shape, you're not in pull-up shape. There isn't a there isn't a good cheat code for pull-ups as far There's as I know. No, no, it absolutely is a gauge for upper body strength versus uh, push-ups, hundred percent. Yeah, and their 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 uh, their run is also twice as long. They do a three mile run. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the three mile run, and it's a lot. Our mile and a half failure rate is like for a twenty year old something like thirteen minutes. Well, they're they're top of the line guys are running three miles in 18 minutes and you have 30 minutes to finish. Yep. And what I've learned from embracing running is distance isn't proportional. No. The longer you run, the more tired you get, the slower your your miles become. Pretty much. And yep. so yep. it makes a big difference. But anyways, let's go on to, so you go to BR, so you finish roping. Or you, I hate saying it like that. You don't finish roping. You go to school. I go to school. And... You go through BRC. Yep. So back in those days, um, there was BRC and ARC. 
ARS. Or ARS. Yeah. yeah. What what was the difference between the two? Uh, okay, so BRC was West Coast. They called it Basic Recon Course, and it was held down in uh, Coronado on the Amphib base. And we literally were like neighbors to where they were doing buds, right? So, so um, our our we were most of our training was done near the water and the beach, and ARS was held in Camp Lejeune, which is more of a swamp. Right. So it was more, um, well, let's just take one element, for example, the, the, uh, orienteering like land nav course, very different in, uh, California than it is in, in North Carolina. There was a higher failure rate in North Carolina because they had to literally be right on the money going through those forests over there. Whereas in, uh, on the West coast, when you were using your compass, you could do a lot of terrain, um, map terrain association and move faster uh, to get to your points and then do a, a two or three point um, to find out where you were at and then use your compass to get in from there. So that would be one main difference. I think there was also a, an attitude difference. Uh, they always called the West Coast guys the Hollywood uh, recon Marines or whatever. Yeah. And uh, any Marine who came out of uh, San Diego boot camp was a Hollywood something. True. But see, there was also the difference. They dealt with Atlantic uh, water temperatures, and we dealt with Pacific water temperatures. And, and the average temperature of the Pacific Ocean, even in the summer, is like 68 degrees. So there was hardships on both sides. And at the end of the day, I've had arguments all day with different people. But at the end of the day, they were both hard. I mean, but, that was I mean, was it this? Was it the same? Same curriculum. In general, the same curriculum. You had you had different elements in school, right? That they wanted you to learn. Uh, obviously, um, they were teaching you the basics of becoming a recon marine. Recon marines being people that would go out and scout and get intelligence and be able to report it back. So communications was a big part of the, the uh, one of the packages of, of the school. We had to learn how um, to use radios that were either UHF or HF. And, um, and, and that was actually really, really interesting stuff because you'd learn how to bounce uh, signals off the atmosphere if you were over the horizon and, and were farther away. Uh, it was great because, you know, our, our purpose was to be inside a hide somewhere looking at something and reporting that back to the rear so that they could either get weapons on it or deploy troops uh, in relationship to it. So patrolling was another aspect uh, of, of school, which sucked because you have to carry heavy heavy loads with gear that, they, that you need to observe and then get into a position where you're not going to be seen in a small element um and then uh also inserting you into areas was another element of the school so the amphib part where you would come from the sea because marines obviously come from ships and we would deploy off a ship get into a small boat and then swim into shore so you had to be able to to do to navigate that um, with a lot of gear, and then know how to stow that stuff, get to where you were going to be, so you could do your job to observe. And that was a lot of the green side. They call the green side of reconnaissance, and that's what the uh, the the courses were were focused on. So both of them focused on all those elements. It was just a different way of how they did it. I think there was probably uh, it was probably less regulated on the east coast yeah 
Did you, um, since you, you brought up the point that you guys were basically next door neighbors to, to buds, did you ever look over the, the berm and say, thank God I made this choice? Uh, or did you ever find yourself saying what would have happened if I would have gone the buds route? Yeah, I thought about it. I thought about it a lot, but see, being neighbors with them, we would eat in the same chow hall in that, as them. We would drink. In fact, sometimes we get, there's a good rivalry. You know, you'd talk a bunch of shit as you pass them information. They'd be running, they'd, we'd be running. The difference was we were running with 85, 95 pound packs. And they were running around with a little belt and some, uh, some water, right? So when I was looking at it now, there was, I mean, no question, Hell Week's hard. Yeah, I, I watched those guys go through that uh, multiple uh, times while I was there. As you know, there's always a, an element of the next Hell Week coming up. Um, they carry their boats around, but the thing is their boats are empty. Their boats are empty, and they're running around. They don't have a pack on. So, so when I look at it, I felt like I was at the grown-up course of buds when I was going through recon school, and they were kind of I know that's not fair because they got a lot of other follow-on things they got to do too. But I mean, you you did too. You're the 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 modern day recon corpsman pipelines. What eighteen to twenty four months? Yeah. If that's you right. were lucky enough to get schools back to back to back. Correct. That's right. So I mean, I I look at it like uh, from an outsider's perspective, BRC and buds are step one, and then. SQT or STT, whatever it's called now, to get your Trident is nothing more than what you guys do to get your 8427 or 8403. Yeah, I, I, it's very similar. Um, I think that some of the stuff that they do out on the island, uh, uh, Catalina. Uh, San Clemente. San Clemente, thank you. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing them go play around in Avalon on Catalina. I think it'd be quite hilarious for all those yeah, island would be, lovers. would be. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> I got some funny stories about uh, swimming into uh, San Clemente in the evenings. That place always freaked me out, man. That was my least favorite place to be in the water. Least favorite place to be in the water. At know? the island? The, at the island. Yeah, because you know uh, that witching hour when the birds are coming down and the, and the fish are there and the seals are around? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you're in shark bait territory. Shark, shark territory, man. I'll never forget the pucker factor always swimming into that island for me was high. Yeah. Like, okay, tonight's going to be the night. <laughs> it's but, only going to hurt for a second, Chef. <laughs> no, but the dichotomy between the two trainings, I think, you know, one was focused on uh, getting gear into a place where you could report. And the other one was... You know, Buds, I think, was a testing ground for, for can we break your mind? Uh, they, they, and and in, in some ways, being a roper had already done that for us. That's what I was going to ask you next. Do so you think it would have benefited the SEALs to send these guys to a team to, to basically rope like you guys did? 100%. Before sending them? I think their, their graduation rate would be a lot higher if they did that. But do you think that's their, their true mission is to have a high graduation rate? No. Or? No, there's only a certain amount, amount of SEALs that can be. In fact, that's why there's SEALs like station places where they're not even doing SEAL work today yeah. because there's all, SOCOM only allows so many of them to be on, on the teams, you know? So, so, I mean, it's the same with MARSOC and, and, and Recon too, to be honest with you. So you now 
go off and um, finish BRC, which was only one step in the entire pipeline for you to become a true recon corpsman. Correct. And so just a quick for everyone who doesn't understand this, I have this belief that the Navy makes the best uh, enlisted medical guys in the world by far. Um, Light years ahead of Air Force and Army. And it's because we don't specialize. The Army, their 68 whiskeys basically only do their job when they're in the field or when they're in combat. Correct. Air Force med techs are, have very, very siloed places. Corpsmen, like we were talking earlier, go to core school. We learn these nursing skills that help. Uh, we get to a battalion, whether it's a CB battalion, a Marine Corps battalion, and suddenly we're one of maybe 50 corpsmen and there's no nurses. So we have to kind of fill in the blank with the doctors and we're interacting directly at the doctors, whereas at a hospital, we're interacting with the nursing staff. Yes. On board a ship, it's completely different. So we have to know everything out of the banks, leaving core school to be able to, to float. Now, we're not learning the intimacy, but we're glazing over how this all works. Yeah, I agree. That's from administrative duties all the way to uh, emergency care to post-emergency care and follow-on care. So then you get to field med where you become an 8404, which both you and I hold that NEC. And we learn a little bit more about how to operate in a Marine Corps field environment. Correct. But then when we get to our first battalion, and I don't know how much medical time that they actually let you do at first force versus just being beaten down. No, um, they, used, they used us on daily sick call. Okay. We were corpsmen, so every morning... Uh, after getting, we would have to get there, get crunched for about two hours, and then sick call would start, and we would do sick call, and they would critique us on on your ability to do sick call. Absolutely, and uh, and then after sick call, we'd get crunched, and then yeah. So 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 my point to that was that even at that level where you're I'm at my first Marine Corps battalion, you're at first force. And depending on the medical officer you have, you may be doing the entire examination on your own and just taking him your note and he's going to read over, sign off on it. And then you send the guy off without ever seeing the doctor because there's that much of a trust between you and your skill set and what the doctors do. Yes, and, and and at first, any doctor, any good doctor is going to establish that trust with you first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Obviously, uh, it's not day one, but it's it can correct. happen. Once they know how you think and where your weaknesses are, they're going. They usually, you know, my, in my experience, either the doc is going to be like, "Okay, you got that," I don't, and just sign, or they're going to be like, "Okay, I, I have a question about this for you," and then see where your brain's at on it. Why did you do this, or why did you want to give them that? And um. If you if you can answer the question, then they feel good. They're like, okay, I get it. You you know what you're talking about. Yep, go go forth and do. So the reason why I brought all that up was because then we get into what we call our NECs. I think that that word's changed now to some stupid thing that some Nick Pond changed a couple of years ago. Yep. But um, so these other things like IDC uh, reconnaissance corpsmen are now even more specialized versions. So where the Army and the Air Force, you come in as a specialized thing. We come in as a kind of know a little bit about everything. Now you're going to learn your trade even more. Correct. So let's talk about um, you finish BRC. Do you go to what was your next 
um, evolution after BRC? Right. So in the pipeline. The, for me, the way the orders went was I went to BRC, graduated, and then it was on to, uh, they, they front loaded all the physical schools up front. Oh, okay. Uh, to make sure that, you know, you could get through the physical aspect of it. Because if, if you couldn't even get through the physical aspect of it, they didn't want to put you through the really expensive schools uh, for academics later, right? Because maybe you get through that and then you can't pass dive school. So for me, BRC was up front. Once I graduated BRC, I went to um, uh, Panama City, Florida for uh, Marine Corps. They call it MCD, Marine Corps Dive. Oh, so you went straight from BRC to dive. Straight to dive school. So I think that would may have, from the, from the recon corpsmen that I know, and even from some of the recon Marines I know, I think that would probably be the smart way. You're in peak physical shape. You've yes. been in the water a lot. Yes. I know, I know some guys who went um, BRC, sea, or jump, and dive was last. I don't agree with there, that. There, and there was gaps, like yeah. month-long gaps between schools. I don't agree with that. Or in fact, BRC, um, and if, and now now, you fast forward to 2020, there is no BRC or ARS anymore. It's one curriculum. They don't have separate schools anymore. It's one right. Curriculum. They're they're all in doing their thing. That's right. And one of the things that BRC did correctly is they finished the course with the amphib phase. Oh, good. It finished with water and then went on to the next school, which was water. And I thought that was a very intelligent way to do things. Your legs were already prepared to push all that weight around because you've just been doing it, you know, and it's a very unique uh, if, if anybody's ever tried finning with military fins and pushing gear around, this and anybody that does it well will tell you it's supposed to hurt. You never get used to it. It will hurt every time you do it. It just sucks. So let let it. I think that this may be a good way of describing it. Um, you mentioned earlier in high school you went through a paddy dive course. Yep. And when people think diving and i've had my buddy jules who was a navy, who was an actual nd navy diver uh went to dive school as a first class <laughs> late in life but even him he said it's not quite the same as combatant dive or mcds or any of the like his was hard hat dive not yeah. so i people think well oh i could die dive school yeah go get my scuba cert yeah, right. Yeah. How, how close was it to, to getting your patty? Oh, it's nothing. It's not even close. The, the Navy, uh, the military in general is going to make work out of anything. It, they take any kind of fun that you can have out of something and, and they put insert work into it. It's a job. So um, uh, dive school is, is split into um, different. So everybody that goes, to, and then, and, uh, see, I'm going to screw up this acronym now. Naval Dive uh, Training Self uh, Center in, in Panama City. The Marine Corps attached itself uh, to, to them. That's where all the Navy sends their hard hat divers too. But everybody starts off in phase one. We call it uh, um, pool phase or scuba phase. So everybody learns open water diving, no matter if you've had it in the past or not. And in fact, if you bring it up, you usually get hazed because they want to train you in their in their model. They teach you all the elements of open water breathing diving, which is basically scuba. And then 
it culminates in pool week, which is my favorite part. I just loved it. I thought it was the best. Um, so was pool week, uh, what I've affectionately heard as drown proofing? Pretty much. Um, it's not, it's not drown proofing like what people see on TV where they tie your hands and feet together. This is where you have your gear on and you're wearing a blackout mask. So you can't see anything. It's completely dark. And then they have instructors come down and they simulate um, you getting caught saying a big wave or getting caught at night um, in, uh, in a situation where you get caught up in, in, your, in gear or a ship's prop or whatever. And they, they come down, they hit you, knock all the breath out of you, tie your gear up in knots, um, take your mask off, the whole nine. Like, do you basically get beat to shit for about 30 seconds? And then they've already taught you this whole procedure of how to get your stuff back under control, right? So you have to come, the whole goal is, is we need you to be calm, cool, collected underwater, especially when you've lost your breath hold uh, or you're all the oxygen out of your lungs to get that oxygen source back so you don't die. And uh, a lot of people fail this section because uh, automatic failure is bolting to the surface. Um, if you bolt to the surface, it's automatic failure kicked out. So you, you really have to have like a, a kind of a mind of steel during this period of time because it's it's very anti anything uh, what humans like. Your body is screaming at you to get air, get air, get air. So going through this procedure seems counterintuitive, right? Uh, okay, fine. Try Let's trace my line. Oh, it's in a knot. Now I have to undo the knot. Okay. Now I trace the line out. I can put it in. Now I got to get my my air back on. Now I can find my mask. You know, all the while, the instructors are trying to get like if you're if you let the your scuba tanks float around, they're gonna come steal them from you. Simulating another wave coming along and taking you. So you have to you have to be mindful all the time of containing your gear. It's, it's very good training. And so they do a whole week of that and you have to pass. Uh, so, yeah. So pretty much everybody gets a little water in their lungs. It's okay. Yeah. You'll survive. Right. So I do know from talking to other guys, uh, it's not just the drown proofing part. That's the hard part. Uh, you guys learn some stuff about how to get from point A to point B underwater um like underwater land nav i guess yep so and that's the next phase right so we move on and and, and after the pool phase that's when um everybody splits so hard hat divers will go learn their hard hat diving marines will go learn um their open or their closed circuit rig and uh the 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 term or the name for that is the drager system it's it's simple but old and still effective and they still use it um the navy's uh, eod uh, and seals have moved on to uh, mark fives and mark sixes and all this other stuff that have electronics there's no electronics in the drager system it's basically a rebreather where you have 100 percent aviator oxygen and it runs through a scrubber and so you can rebreathe your own air um and and die for longer periods of time so the problem with that is you can't go deep on 100% oxygen. So the whole goal is to get from point A to point B. Again, work, right? If we're inserting Marines under the water, it's because we want them to go somewhere 
for a mission. So generally speaking, we're diving at about 25 feet, no deeper. That's deep enough to get underneath boat props, et cetera, not be seen. Um, the, the closed loop system doesn't provide any bubbles, so there's no surface uh, disturbance. And we're supposed to go from point A to point B. And when we do our work, it's always at night. So there has to be somebody navigating. So they pair, during the pool phase, they're doing open water fins. And uh, they do their best to pair you up with somebody that's as fast as you. The goal during the school is to be able to move 500 yards or 500 meters in uh, 14 minutes. So, every, so you should know that every 14 minutes you've moved 500 meters. So whoever's navigating is concentrating on time and azimuth because you know uh, you, you're, you're trying to hit a point on the right. beach, right? So that's the goal. And it's hard because you're doing it at night. Sounds like a blast. Well, and the other thing about Panama City is you've got this bioluminescent plankton. And as you're, as you're diving, it's swirling. So it completely throws you off. Like you think you're swimming left the whole time. So one of the things they, they teach you is you have to trust your gear. You, you have to trust the compass. If you don't, you're going to end up off in BFE somewhere. So, and they grade you based on how accurate you are and your time, because that time is the standard too. So, um, which is common with most military uh, physical training. There's always a time hack that you have mm -hmm. to that you have yeah, to perform. And of course, the dives get longer and longer and longer as you before you graduate. So, did you after you graduated dive school? Um, did you go back to first force, or were you on orders after orders after orders? Orders after orders. Yep. So from there, I went on to. It just so happened that I had jump school next, so I went oh, to it be a lawn dart. Yeah. That's right. So I went to Fort Benning and uh, went through that little course, which is an age-old army back from the 1930s, 1938, I think, was the first time. Was uh, it really that long ago? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is. It's crazy. Almost 100 years ago, or yeah. 80 years ago at least. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and, and not much has changed except for the shoots. They still do the training exactly the same way. There's no reason to change it because you can basically throw a sack of potatoes out of a plane and it can land on the ground under a parachute. <laughs> it's not that hard. So, I mean, there's, I think enough people have heard about uh, airborne school, but what was, a, what was your first platform and what was it like standing in the door? Um, I remember, uh, so I never was the first, in school I was never the first person out the door. So I didn't have that experience of like having to look down or whatever. I was in line and in, 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 in basic airborne, there's so many people they're throwing out of the plane that, you know, once you get going, it's like shuffle, 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 jump. So you don't really have time to think about it once you stand up. It's all the waiting around prior to that because you literally get what they call jocked up or suited up and all your stuff. And then you have to get two jump masters to check your gear. Then they sit you down in these huge like seats that are wooden and you sit there and there's no, if you got to piss your pants, you just piss your pants because there's no getting out of your gear. You're waiting on aviation crew at that point. 
and that can take forever depending on what they're doing or if there's a problem with the plane or this that and the other i remember one time we sat there for six hours in our gear waiting to get on the plane uh. so, i know and then you get on the plane you line up uh in an order they put you in what they call sticks and so the stick leader is going to be at the back of the line because they're the first person out and you get in reverse order and you get in the plane sit down buckle up and then they have a series of uh, instructions they give you when you're in the plane. They'll let you know, um, you know, they have like a, they'll, they'll do this thing where they'll give you the wind, how much the wind is blowing. And that that's supposed to help you determine, uh, you know, when you get out, how you're going to angle yourself towards the drop zone, uh, et cetera. Um, anyway, then they'll give you the 10-minute the warning and the two-minute warning and 30-second warning. And then everybody stands up and hooks up. That's the last minute for you to check all your stuff. I always check my leg, leg straps two or three times. And then as soon as they say go, it's like shuffle, shuffle, move. Jump out. And then you're waitless for that brief second. Yeah, it's not very long, though. You're literally waitless. But that waitless period isn't very peaceful because you're still getting all the heat and the noise from the engine because you basically, it, we did side door exits. So you were C-130s? Uh, yeah, we did C-130s and C-141s. And um, so it was never a back door. It was always out the side. And they're putting people out both sides of the, of the plane. So you have to time that correctly because it, if, you, if you time it, if you jump out at the same time, you could meet underneath the plane and smash into each other. Because you're literally coming underneath the plane, right? Um, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, you're, but you're right. So they have to, the jump masters have to coordinate that. It's like one second, one second, one second, one second. So, and that's why maybe you've seen some footage on TV. If somebody's not going, they'll, they'll put a boot in your ass and stick you out the door, period. Yeah. Because they don't, they, that timing has to be right when they're putting that many jumpers out. Yeah. <laughs> so you get that one second of like chaos where you're falling and there's all this heat from the engine and all this noise and then the opening shock, which it is. It's, I mean, it's like, a, it's, a, it's like trying to jump off the roof if you're in a harness and just make a sudden stop. It sucks. My, my only airtime is civilian skydiving. And from what I've been told by the, the riggers that used to work at Fourth Recon, this is Cadillac on your worst opening compared to what it is going out of static line and yeah no it's there's no question because you got a bunch of gear strapped to you too remember your yeah. pack and your weapon and all that stuff with you so it's it's for sure you end up with a lot of bruises in your in your uh crotch and uh yeah it's just the way it is so any uh any bumps and bruises or any injuries for you out of jump school no i'm not jump school jump school i thought was a joke it was an exercise in patience, just getting through it, you know? Yeah. Dealing with the black hats who think it's like this really badass school. Well, and I always heard from the, the recon guys that there were two sets of people that they liked to haze or, or at least pick on a lot, which was uh, the Marines and the SEALs. Got shit left and right from those guys. Oh, and there's no question, man. We were sought, we were picked on all the time. And, and they knew, they knew we were going to graduate. They knew we had already been through something but they wanted they, this was their school right yeah so they had to make it a little harder on us and that's okay usually what they did is they'd make fun of like they'd make you go get a haircut because usually the sailors would show up or the you know the seals would show up with longer hair 
they'd be like, fucking hippie. You can't, you ain't, you ain't jumping unless you have a proper rig. So they'd make you go get a haircut, whatever. Or, or they'd call you out because we weren't used to calling cadence on the runs, right? You, so in the schools we've been through, it was all individual effort. There wasn't like formation runs. Oh, that's you, a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So, so they would, they would love to call us out and make us, um, call cadence or sing songs on the group on the formation runs which we were never good at so of course they would make fun of us and haze us and make us do extra pull-ups and sit-ups and whatever so and and you know the one thing the one thing that uh should be noted is that the, the army's uh, sit-ups to get into jump school because day one is a physical test and uh it was different uh the navy does crunches where you have to touch your elbows to your to your thighs but in the army, it was full behind the head, face through the knees. Yeah, they would was... watch. They would watch critically, and if they didn't think you did it right, they wouldn't count it. And so, does the does the army's because that's their PFT, right? That's just the general army PFT is the the regular sit ups where everyone else does some form of a crunch, right? They've gone away from that now. Jump school is still the only element that holds on to that. Really? because it's their way of weeding people out i'm telling you man because they know that sailors are not used to that and they they there's more than one seal and more than one recon dude i know they got kicked out because of the sit-ups i can tell you i have seen some pretty hideously large uh soldiers with their jump wings um yeah no i agree the army pretty much sends anybody through but see they're not going to be watching them um sorry are you being summons i was i have uh i apologize for that no no worries got so, uh i'm a football coach so some something uh just came up with that too i enjoy that okay. for my soul yeah That's so good, you're right though to your point sorry for the um for the drama the the, the army will put just about anybody through airborne school, right? They, they need everybody airborne qualified, but they don't, uh, you know, they don't focus as much on them. Yeah, that makes sense. So you finish jump school, uh, you get your whatever, five jumps in, you got your little lead sled. Yep. Um, now, unless I'm missing some schools, you're off to the psychological and the academic schools. That's right. Yep, and I did my academic first. I didn't get this year. They had an opening, uh, so I went to the 18 Delta program straight out of there Let, in North Carolina. So, again, we've said, in my opinion, and I think you agree with me, Navy corpsmen are the most highly trained uh, enlisted medical personnel in the military. Special amphibious reconnaissance corpsmen get what I would call a power-up through this 18 Delta school. For sure. Which is special for what? What is it? Special Forces Medical Sergeants course or something like that? That's right. SFMS, Special Forces Medical Sergeant course. That's right. That's crazy that I can remember that. Yep. Um, which is, in some weird way, in my opinion, getting you to that PA level without actually being a PA, at least operationally speaking. Uh, I would agree with that, and 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 I have, I can actually speak to that 
because later in my career, I, I did go through the academic portion of PA school. So um, it, it absolutely, in fact, uh, I think it's kind of a travesty uh, to the military members that they're not being given an avenue out of that course to get credentialed as a PA. It is so similar and so in-depth. Um, there are elements to PA school on uh, that focus uh, specifically on the medical side um, that you don't get in 18 Delta because they're focused on austere medicine. They're focused on trauma. They're focused on um, a lot of uh, tropical diseases. So a lot of virology, a lot of uh, uh, epidemiology. You literally learn how to look under a microscope and identify what kind of worm is in your patient based on the egg. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty in-depth course. It's very, very thorough, very professional. Um, it is a credit to the army. I will tell, I will say that it's a gentleman's course. They don't haze you there. It's all about the medicine. Uh, and it, it's a buildup in a way that allows you to get to the culmination, which is, uh, a surgical rotation. Uh, and of course, everything, uh, that they do is, um, you you physically do at some point. So if you're going to learn about um, you know surgery, they're going to you're going to go into the OR, which means you have to know about anesthesia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, it was a very challenging course, so, and it was a very big speed change. Okay, so you're going through all these physical demanding courses physically, but not really having to think too much, right? Well, dive school had a lot of, uh, you know, dive physiology is, there, there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of math involved in that and just the concept. But this school was another level, right? So now you're not doing physical things. You're doing PT in the morning, but that's, it's relatively easy compared to what you've been doing. But now it's a focus on just constant academics. Yeah. So, um you mentioned austere medicine and my understanding of 18 Delta, cause it was the one school that I wish I would have been able to get into somehow. Yeah. Um, I had someone who told me if I made it back from my deployment at fourth LAR, which is who I was when I got mobilized to deploy, they were, there was a former, uh, our former Sergeant major. He was a recon guy back in the day. He's like, oh, I can try to figure out how to get you into that school, even though you're not going to the pipeline. <laughs> um, Sergeant major Martinez, I forgot what his first name was. But he, uh, what I understand about the school, though, was that it was specifically made for um, the Green Berets back in yes. when, when they would go in and do foreign military training. That's right. Or, or it, training um, insurgent forces. That's correct. They would be sent in, uh, and that's called FID, Foreign Internal Defense or whatever. Um, uh, the whole purpose was to send them in to an area where they would live with the people, right? And train, train forces, uh, provide uh, advice, et cetera, et cetera. And so the medics were supposed to be kind of like PAs that could treat not only the indigenous people, we even learned dental, we even learned tooth extractions. Um, so it was a whole body um, birthing, delivering babies, the whole nine, you know, and, but, but not only that, they had to be able to, it, it wasn't America, so they would have to uh, understand the tropical diseases and the differences between those and how to treat them. 
uh, malaria, you know, yellow fever, dengue, all of that. So you're right. It, it was born out of the SF uh, Special Forces Army sergeants that would go in. And this was long before the, any of the, the special missions units were really set up. Yes. So yeah. what was your experience through through all that? I mean, wanting to go PA, to become a PA, seeing, having this desire for advanced medical training, was that the pinnacle course for you or... Oh, I was so impressed. It was it, it, it exceeded all my expectations. Actually, uh, I expected to get there, and 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 the the dog and pony show that I had just come from at Fort Benning was what I expected to see. And I was I was so disappointed coming out of jump school with the army. To be honest with you, um, they literally have like a coordinated at at and you, you probably remember this at Basic Airborne where they have um, this little show where they do this little dance literally like coordinated dance when they're showing the students how to do something and they'll hit their sides twice and do this thing. And it's, it's the strangest, like the Navy guys, we would talk about this, like what is going on? I mean, but it, but it has roots in history. Okay. I don't want to take away from that. It has roots in history for the army, which is why they still do it. But coming from that, I was going to this course thinking, okay, this is going to be another one of these army things. I seriously have to deal with this for, this long, but then I got there and it was like completely different. It was right out of the gate. It was professional. It was, Hey, you're here for a reason. Um, the government's spending money on you. We want you to succeed. It, it was, it was almost like a college atmosphere where they recognize, okay, you're, you're in the military and you still have to pass certain physical requirements and we're going to do PT and you're in a uniform. But what we really care about here is for you being a student and doing well as a student. And the instructors uh, made that obvious. They were very professional. They were very knowledgeable. Um, and he, you know, we had some of the uh, uh, most, uh, the Dr. Uh, what was his name? Olivieri or something like that. He was an Air Force doctor and he was the one who studied and did all the work on coup contra coup. Uh, and he was a, a, one of our professors at the school. I mean, that's the kind of level of... of so you, you had some pretty high-level guys. Absolutely. The military's finest was sent there to train. And from the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy, it was a tri-service organization. And everybody there had some kind of uh, reason behind their name that they were there. So uh, I forgot to ask, did you go through... Was this... The long course or the short course for you? Now, back when I went through, it was a short course. It was a six month, and it was just over six months, almost seven. Uh, they called it SOCOM and uh, Special Operations Combat Medic Course. And uh, really, the first six months focuses on all the anatomy, physiology, um, the way the body works, uh, clotting, internal, external clotting systems, uh, blah, 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 because it's all for. Uh, trauma medicine. And then you go through your trauma lanes um, and um, and then you do a rotation in a hospital somewhere where uh, presumably there's going to be a lot of gunshots, knives, uh, uh, car injuries, things like that. So you can practice your trauma skills and then you graduate. So back then uh, you didn't, at least the recon corpsman didn't stay for the whole course. We graduated SOCOM and we moved on. And that was still back when uh, the other guys, the 
why am I drawing a blank? The Seals still had Corman. Yes. Before they had one unified rate. That's so, right. Yeah, my class had five recon guys and five Seals. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then you finish that, jump off to, I'm assuming, DMT, Divmetech, or did was that part of no, your pipeline? No, actually, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. Divmetech was followed on right after dive school. Oh, okay. They, they tacked that on right at the end of dive school so that you don't have it's to come back. It's a short course, too, right? It's three weeks, and it's uh, basically uh, dive med tech. So you're learning about the hyperbaric chamber, medicine, um, and being an inside tender. So basically taking care of patients that need to be uh, hyperbaric medicine for diving-related injuries. So then you're finally, I guess, off to the, the, the fun school? after 18 delta oh yeah yeah so now i get orders uh at this point during 18 delta once they know you're going to graduate you actually get orders to a unit oh so you didn't go you didn't okay i thought you were going to go back to first force they don't do that they they literally wait until you're graduating and find out where the needs at least at the time that i graduated that, which would make sense yeah where are the needs the greatest and so um we we had a according to the ETL, a huge graduating class because there was five of us. So the fleet was getting a huge bonus of recon corpsmen at the time. Um, imagine that, right? And so uh, I got orders and for whatever reason, it was back to Kent Pendleton, to a recon battalion. So uh, uh, as a result, they just cut me orders to go to Sear and route, which is, you know, uh, search, evasion, resistance, survival. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've heard many a story about it. So I take it you survived and got yeah. done with that class. I hear that the the final exercise is the big hoopla without going into anything on that. I take it you made it through that with flying colors. I did. Uh, actually, I got in trouble, though, because I, I, I evaded too long. I have heard that from quite a few people, which makes me wonder, did they actually try to find you or did they just let you go think that you're hiding? No, they do. The problem is, is that, is that some of the students, so for example, they've, they've given us the skills in BRC, right? This, this course, you're, you're attending it with, with pilots, with uh, other people that haven't, that are not ground pounders. They're anybody that could be captured. Be captured. Yeah. Right. So you, you don't necessarily have people with skill sets to do a lot of evading, but, but the Marines that are going through this course have been given quite a bit of extensive skill set on how to evade. And so uh, they tell you at the beginning of the course, hey, if you hear this drop dead time buzzer or bell, you need to come out. Uh, for whatever reason, I had hit to the point where I couldn't hear it. So then they have to send people searching, going around. And there's not enough instructor to student ratio either, which is part of the problem. These classes can be really big. Oh, can they really? So um, that's the other problem is that you, you get a bunch of students running around out in an open area. Uh, can't keep track of them all, you know? Did you go west coast or east coast? Dogs out there and make it more realistic. That would be interesting. But did you go, uh, did you do it back in California or did you do it on California? Yeah, California. Because uh, I've talked to a couple people who did it up in wherever it is on the east coast. Yeah, so um, they used to have the, both of them were the same, right? Now, or, or at least when I went through, the, the one in New Brunswick is a higher level. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. They, they just talked about going through it in the middle of winter. Yeah, that, that I would not enjoy. Yeah. I will tell you, that was probably pretty tough for those people. I have not been through that one. I've been through uh, another follow-on one that uh, I can't talk about, but there's several layers of that school, even above the one that I went to. Right. So, so how much of your childhood came out in your evasion part of the school? It's a good question. I don't really know how to answer that. I think. Um, I mean, I'm assuming you enjoyed the evasion part. I sure did, man. That was a lot of fun. I, I rambled it up as much as possible, but I think it, I think that stuff was just kind of natural to me. I was used to moving through terrain, through uh, foliage, through woods, through. I mean, don't forget, man. When I was a kid, Guatemala's got jaguars running around and stuff too. So, and um, so. We got, um, not to mention the chupacabra. <laughs> got to watch out for those things. <laughs> We're always on the lookout for, for sign. So, you know, I think, I think my childhood absolutely influenced my ability in, in schools like this, my attitude at least. I had already been through or seen what, what it was like to, to live a certain way. And so I didn't take things as seriously as some other people did, I think, you know. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So what year did you finally become an 8427? I became a 27 at the beginning of, let's see. Yeah, it was in November of 03. So somewhere along the line, we skipped a big event. What's that? That happened between you starting over at Recon or at Force, I'm assuming, or maybe the end of Naples, and you becoming an 8403 something called oh God, i can't think of the word uh some numbers um nine nine eleven oh yes happened in between that. those two i remember that now, obviously i think everybody remembers where they were everybody remembers where they were i remember getting to the bas um or they called it a cas at first force i was a roper i was a roper at the time and we always used to get there and we'd have to do a series of uh, exercises before we were allowed to enter the building, right? And that was all honor code, but somebody was always watching, I can tell you that. They would, I don't know how, but they freaking knew every time we tried to cheat them. Were you guys still oh. at the bottom of the Flores uh, barracks? Yeah, okay, that's, that's exactly yeah. right. That's why they called it a CAS because it was literally a barracks room that they turned yeah. into. Company company aid station or company something. Station. At that time, First Force was a company. It wasn't a battalion. Yeah, so that would make sense. Company plus. Company plus. And so um, they had an area in the back. You'd come in and there was a front desk where you'd check in. And then there was a, on the left side of the, the um, it was basically two barracks rooms put together that they had opened up a wall. So on the left side was where the, um, uh, treatment rooms were and the exam area and then uh, on the right they had put up a barrier and that was kind of like the sark room back there that was like their area they had like you know fridge and then beers and tv and whatever love me stuff back there paddles and whatever else gear their lockers it was kind of like a lounge and i'll never forget we got in that morning we just did our, our pull-ups and we we had a routine we had to come in and get ready for sick call so we were getting all the paperwork together, the SF-600s that we're going to get 
you know, used that morning, et cetera, et cetera. Everything was getting lined up, organized. And I remember Master Chief Fitzgerald, uh, he, he pops his head around the curtain. He's like, motherfuckers, get back here. And so we ran back there. Yes, Master Chief. And we were never, ever allowed in that Sark area. That was like holy territory, right? He's like, get back here. We were like, uh, he's like, we're about to die. <laughs> he's like, I'm not fucking kidding. Get back here. And so we, we come in there and get in the push-up position. He's like, no, stand the fuck up. I need you guys to see this. And sh- uh, he had the TV on. He's like, hey, no shit. This morning, there's no games. Look at this. We're being attacked. He's like, I want you guys to get your shit together and your heads together. We need you because we're about to go to war. And I never forget that. That was the first time he was ever actually like talked to me like a real person. And he told me, hey, you're about to go to war. And right after he said that, we saw the second plane hit the tower. tower. And I was like, holy shit, my life is about to change forever. So you had all that going into all these schools. Yep. How much of that was? And I missed the initial invasion, actually, because of it. Because I was in school. Would you do you think you would have deployed with them if you weren't in school? 100%. They took everybody. Oh, they did. Oh. Yep. Yep. If I wasn't committed to the pipeline, but but decisions were made, and I think it was the right decision because uh, they needed bodies so bad. They were at like 40% manning or something like that. So, oh, damn. Yeah. So you get back to 1st Recon Battalion, and 9-11s happened two years ago. We're on the verge of going into Iraq, or we've either on the verge of or already in Iraq. I don't know when you graduated. Yeah, so I got back. I got back, and everyone had just returned from the initial invasion. It was literally everybody had just gotten back, and there was this kind of like um, downtime. I, I don't know how to explain it. It was weird. Guys were like leaving off. There was a lot of people on leave. Um, Chief Brown was the chief at uh, at the BAS. He was the senior SART there. And, you know, he basically said, look, everybody just got back, so they're kind of refitting and retooling, and we're going to start the regular cycle again, which was like this 18-month workup cycle where people would go out on news or whatever. Nobody had any idea at this time that there was going to be OIF 2 or 3 or 4 or 65. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but then very shortly within a month, um, like I had gotten put on a team, but we did no training together at this point. Everybody was either on leave or, you know, licking their wounds or whatever. And um, so the announcement comes down, hey, we're going to go to OIF2. And I remember, man, it was like this palpable sense of, fuck. We just got back, you know, like, why didn't they just leave us there? And so for me, though, I was like, cool. I'm not going to have gone through all that training for nothing. You know, I get to go, I get to actually go and put it to work. So anyway, um, we get ready. Gears all broken down. And, you know, you've probably seen pictures of those Humvees all stripped down with packs hanging off of them, no up armor. Just oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so how quick did you guys leave then? It was within, it was literally within four months of me getting there. 
So there was no real workup. We did, we did like some rudimentary workups on convoys and stuff like that because they, everybody knew this was going to be a, a vastly different uh, um, operational deployment than taking of the country, right? Now we were sustaining ops, so. Well, that was basically the last, well, outside of anything that we've done with ISIS, but that was like the last time that recon actually did what it was supposed to do, right? Yep. Yep. So you get over there and you're playing, and God, that came out wrong. You're doing the recon battalion thing, but you're almost playing infantry or yeah. convoy support at that point in time. Well, yeah, we did a lot of, um, so we took over, uh, first of all, we got sent to Camp Fallujah. So um, how, how to use this asset, right? And so the general at the time uh, decided, well, the best thing we can do is to put you guys out in a field where we know that the um, uh, poo sites are po point of origin sites for rocket and mortar attacks are coming from. So that if we put you in under the cover of darkness and you find a place to hide, you can call in fire on those or engage the enemy yourselves. So initially, <clears throat> that's how they used us. We had some good success doing that, but uh, you know it was really difficult to hide in that terrain. That Fallujah area is just a desert. There's no like yeah, you literally roll right up to the city. I'm it's not gates, but you literally roll right into the city, and then and not only that, but Iraq is unlike any other place I've been, even Afghanistan, where you literally have like this random person. You'll be in the middle of the desert and they'll just walk out of nowhere. Like you can't, you can't just hide. People are just everywhere. Yeah. And and dogs, it's stray dogs. Can't tell you how many stray dogs we killed trying to stay hidden. But people would always find us. We could not stay hidden in that in that terrain. And so it ended up being very difficult. Uh to do the hide, they call it the hide thing, where we would just sit there for seven days and observe and wait for rockets to come in and then kill people. It, it didn't work that well. It worked at first and then, then they caught on to it. And um, especially in the lush, like green areas, that's where we tried to, to go into, but then they stopped, they, you know, they had their own. Yeah, they, they, uh, they, the Iraqis, <laughs> The, the Iraqi insurgency was smart enough to adapt. They absolutely were. Now, they had a lot of stupid fighters, unlike Afghanistan. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I respect, I have a higher degree of respect for the, for the Taliban fighters than I do the, the initial OIF-2, OIF-3 fighters in Iraq. Now, subsequent after that, they became much more intelligent because the ones that survived were the ones who were smarter. Yeah, but initially they were just like jihadists that were willing to just basically be whatever, fought. Yeah, whatever it takes to make them a martyr. Pretty much. Yep, they weren't very smart. So I mean, I you hear from our special warfare guys, and I do consider recon, regardless if it ever held the name, but in that same category, uh, about the gunfights. But what was the medical situation that you were doing like over there? Well, uh, we had we had an aid station within our own battalion, but that was pretty much to take care of the sick call of regular, you know, bumps, scrapes, headaches, and stuff for the for for the battalion. Right next to us was Bravo Surgical, and they were basically the base's uh, field hospital, and so most of the stuff that happened would come into them. Uh, we 
At the time, it was very strange. We were not allowed to treat any indigenous personnel unless they were directly attached to us like an interpreter. And, and uh, on the um, northern end of the, uh, there was like a big uh, interchange, road interchange. Uh, yeah, the Cloverleaf. The Cloverleaf, yeah, the Cloverleaf there at, at Fallujah. On the north side of that, they set up a Jordanian hospital. So a lot of the patients that we ended up taking care of, we would drop off at the Jordanian hospital, unless it happened to be uh, patients that were American casualties. But by the time, like usually uh, any work that I did was immediate life-saving, stop bleeding, open airways type stuff, uh, sucking chest wound uh, dressings, and then send on to Bravo Surgical. Okay. We either, we, we would call in air, for evac, or we would call in a convoy that would come get them, that would have a corm another corpsman on it I could turn it over to. The air usually was cat, I mean, it was cast. It wasn't even like, yeah. there was no dedicated medical with a medic in the back of it. You were usually getting a CH-46 with a crew chief and that was about it. So, and for me, this is where some of my my head issues come in, that deployment. I mean, I had to make a decision about putting somebody on a helicopter, um, knowing that if the BVM wasn't being pushed, that they may not make it. You know, we gave instructions to the, to, to the uh, crew chief, but, you know, his main job is to be a crew chief, so. Yeah, no, and even, even when I deployed in 04, or not 04, 06, um, the big issue was they were just bringing corpsmen on to ride in a lot of those helicopters. Yeah. They didn't even have it in 06, 07 when I was over there completely. They didn't have like a dedicated medevac bird. It, Not at all. It just so happened that there may have been a corpsman on that flight and you could turn it over to a corpsman. And I think, I don't even know if they're doing that now with the Marines. Uh, in Iraq, I don't know. I know in Afghanistan, ISAF, International uh, Services, uh, I can't remember, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. The, the International Base or whatever, they, they have dedicated Chinooks that come out when you call for. Oh, okay. Uh, at, in Afghanistan, for sure. So how long did you do over in Iraq that first time? Uh, those first deployments were like seven, eight months, um, almost eight. So, yeah, and then back. So at what point did you find the new lady in your life? It was uh, actually, I met her when I was in BRC. Okay. So we, we skipped over another love story. Yeah, we did. It was, uh, it was interesting. Uh, my grandfather had died, and I hadn't started school yet. And so normally they would have been like, nope, you ain't going nowhere. But I hadn't started school yet, and so they said, okay, you can have you can have a long weekend. And uh, it just so happened that Chief Brown, the guy that was at First Recon Battalion when I checked in, was at BRC when I was there. So he, he was the, the senior guy uh, and he was like, look, this is the way we're gonna do this. You're not gonna be stupid about anything. So you're gonna put a leave chit in my inbox and I'm giving you a long weekend to go do this funeral, but if anything happens, I'm turning in the lead chip type of thing, right? Yeah, so, so you, you were covered. I was covered. So so I bought a last-minute ticket, 
and uh, my buddy Mike, who was actually an instructor at FMSS when I went through, I was staying with him in his apartment just because I didn't like staying in the barracks. They were open bay barracks at BRC, right? Sure. So um, I would stay with him uh, after hours and just get there early or whatever and get ready. Um, so uh, we partied too hard the night before and uh, we get there late. And this is, of course, after 9-11. So all the airport procedures were ridiculous. And so he's like, dude, curbside check-in just opened up. Get Look at the inside. It's crazy. Just run over there and get in line behind that block. <laughs> so I did. And uh, I don't know about you and your experience, but San Diego women, if you even looked like you were in the military or you talked to them, they were giving you the cold shoulder. There was no... Yeah. So you can imagine my surprise when this young lady turns around and is like, wow, it sure is busy this morning and starts talking to me. I was like, what is going on? This is not normal for a girl to start talking to me. Like, these girls are smarter than that. They don't date military guys around here, you know? <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, so we ended up sitting next to each other after I went through a strip cavity search. Sounds uh, about right. Yeah, up in the, like, the lounge area or whatever, kept talking. Then we were next to each other on the plane. And I just felt a vibe from her. I was like, man, I should get this girl's number. And so um, for whatever reason, the, the guy sitting next to me took forever. And uh, I couldn't get my bag. So she was off the plane first. And I was like, dang it. And so I start hauling ass, like running off the plane to try to catch up with her. And it was one of those embarrassing moments you'd see on a movie because I come running out. I got all my crap like dragging behind me. And there she is. And she's like laughing, looking at me like, ah. she hands me her card. She's like, hey, hook me, uh, call me when you get back. <laughs> Here I am. It's pretty obvious I was ru running my ass off chasing her. Just to catch up to her. Just to catch up. So, and then we just, because I was gone so much, uh, I didn't really get the normal, like, sleep together too soon relationship type thing. It was like I was talking to her on the phone a lot. Uh, you know, because I was in training. So I, I spoke with her and we became really good friends. And then after a while, it just really developed into and what, uh, what it is now. Yeah, I'm thankful. So how long, beautiful girls. how long did it take you to finally pop the question? Uh, I think it was uh, when I got back from the pipeline. I, I had no idea that like I'd be gone that long and then leave again, and then leave again, and then leave again. You know what I mean? Like, it, I thought I was going to be there stable for a while. So, and I think she did too. So she's a good woman for putting up with all that. Yeah. I mean, and then you're, we haven't even really scratched the surface of your career, which is even crazier. Because you do this. Whole other session? <laughs> we can keep going if you want. Um, it's up to you. The current where I was going to go with that is so one of our mutual friends once said to me that the smallest special operations community in the military are SARCs. Yes. I think at that time he had said, this was 2008, nine. I think he said there were 97 of you guys prior yeah, to Marsock right. standing up. Yeah. That sounds about right. Less than a hundred. Yeah. And that's not, separating the short course guys from the long course guys. No. 
at some point in time, you went through the long course. I did. So in the Navy, we have Corman 8404s, Special Amphibious Reconnaissance Corman, and then we have a, a type of Corman that's called a IDC, Independent Duty Corman. Correct. We have three of them, I think, three or four of them. We have uh, Surface Warfare, yep. which are go-on ships, and they basically act as a ship's medical officer. They're, they're right. the doctor on board a ship. They're a PA. Exactly. Or a nurse practitioner, or one, you know, whichever one you come Submarine IDC for subs, because for some intelligent reason, the Navy doesn't want to put doctors on board a ship that's already sunk. Um, there's sure. dive IDCs that do dive stuff. Um, and then there's you guys, the special operations or the, the SARC IDCs. Correct. Which is an extension of 18 Delta. So how is it going back to that? Oh, that was tough because, uh, and I'll tell you that they did the right thing. They've switched it since I went through. Now you go through the entire course right up front. Um, your study skills, your your pace of movement, uh, your attitude, your psychology, everything's geared towards getting through that school because you've been doing it while you're in the pipeline. Going back after being at war, doing your job, learning things a different way, honing your skills that weren't taught to you at the school, updates, new equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it is very difficult to go back and just put yourself into a student role again. So that was a huge challenge for me, uh, not only from the aspect of you have to now humble yourself back again to become a student and uh, now you've got rank on you, et cetera, et cetera, but you got people bossing you around that are, that are uh, and, and I was never really a big, like I didn't care about that, but by the same token, sometimes you know when things are, you've been to war, right? And now you're, you've got a kid talking to you that's not been to war and it's like, okay, dude. Was that the thing though? I mean, I would think at uh, 18 Delta, most of those guys on the you'd cadre would have been. Though. You'd be surprised because some of those doctors. Oh, the doctors. They, I'm talking, yeah, I'm not talking necessarily about the enlisted folks. I'm talking about the, the senior level people, right? And so you're telling them, you're, you're, they're asking questions about maybe some of the things that you did and they're critiquing you in such a way that's almost off-putting because you're like, okay, but you weren't there. You're armchair quarterbacking me. Try try doing that when things are blowing up around you. you and, and isn't the course supposed to be about austere medicine where you it don't is. have first world technology? The second part of the course is all about actual medicine. It's not trauma related it's literally um that is where you learn your austere medicine your clinical practices um things to do with geriatrics pediatrics diabetes obesity treating people that you normally never see in a patient population as a as a recon corpsman because i'm always dealing with young healthy males there's no I don't have to deal with diabetes. I don't have to deal with obesity. I don't have to deal with uh, OBGYN issues. So now they're teaching me all of this stuff, plus uh, uh, surgery, surgical aspect of things. Um, so again, couldn't be more impressed with the course. I had a different impression going into it this time, though, knowing that I needed to uh, absorb these things in, in the in the worldview of. I, I would need to use them possibly in the war. 
um, which is interesting because most of the work that I did overseas prior to going to 18 Delta was with Recon Battalion, which meant I was deploying to Iraq. So ironically, after I went through the long course, I was moved to First Force, who literally, I, I was there three months and they cased the colors and became First Marine Special Operations Battalion. So what case the colors means is that unit stopped, ceased to exist and became a that's right. brand new unit. It basically retired them. Which wasn't just a unit being retired. It was a whole new operational concept for the Marine Corps being stood up at that point. Whole time. new. Basically, the Secretary of Defense had said, Commandant of the Marine Corps, I am taking 2,500 of your Marines for SOCOM. So far up to this point in history, Marines had never existed within SOCOM's element. And so what SOCOM is, is uh, you've heard the term before, but it's special operations. Uh, you, what is it? U.S. SOCOM, United States Special Operations Command. Command. Yep. And it's basically what the SEALs, the Rangers, uh, Green Berets, uh, Air Force PJs, CCTs, uh, combat tactical controllers all fall under. Those that Delta and SEAL Team Six. But I, I was going to say those are more um, special missions. They're 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 they the are. JSOC. They are yes, they all fall under SOCOM, and there's different tier levels. They're obviously yeah. tier one, and we fall down lower on that tier spectrum. But every element of what you just mentioned falls under that command. They're, so they're, they're still obligated by their parent service. So you still advance in rank relative yes. to the Army or the Navy. You still advance from... And the, yes, and that was the, the, the argument or the uh, issue that there was between the Marine Corps. And at the time, the Army who owned uh, SOCOM, it sometimes switches services depending on who the, the general is that's in charge. Um, but uh, there's special money allocated by Congress for SOCOM that doesn't go to the Marine Corps, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Coast Guard, or now the Space Force. It's, it's Don't you say those words. I know, I know, it's strange, but it, it actually exists. So SOCOM has its own budget, and it's usually very large comparatively. In fact, I would say that SOCOM has a larger budget with a smidge of the personnel than the Marine Corps has as a total. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, I, I came back to that, and my subsequent deployments were to Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, we did, the rules were different. We did a lot of treating of the indigenous people. We saw kids, we saw elderly patients, we saw, we would, in fact, it was one of the things that we did to, to get people in to talk to them. Um, we would always have intelligence people embedded with the medics because we would set up a host nation clinic and see, see the local populace. I got to see all kinds of stuff. And I wouldn't have been prepared for that if I hadn't gone through that second part of the course. So real quick, back to the uh, casing of the colors and changing from force to uh, MARSOC. Was there any tryout or was there something that you had to do as a recon uh, guy? Uh, good question. So, um, okay, each SOCOM element, whether it be... Uh, SF, Ranger, 
seals, they have their own SOCOM, SOCOM approved pipeline. Up to this point, the reconnaissance pipeline was not ever approved by SOCOM, right? So the only element within uh, Marine Recon that had any actual SOCOM approved training were the Cormac, because they went to 18 Delta, right? So at this point, there was kind of this grandfather clause saying, well, Recon Marines, we love the way you operate. We need you operationally right now. But in the future, we're going to have to have a new pipeline for SOCOM Marines versus Recon Marines. But you, you Corman, you're good to go. You're a grandfather because you go through our course. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so at first, there was no new test uh, physically or mentally or anything like that. They basically absorbed us and um, we had to start learning about what it is that they do differently than the Marine Corps, uh, what their, you know, operational planning, all, all from high to low, it was, it was kind of a change of uh, attitude. Right. Cause you guys don't fall under at that point in time. Well, it may have been at that point in time, you still did, but now MARSOC or Raiders as they're called now, yes. don't fall under necessarily a Marine Corps chain of command when they're in theater, right? When they're in theater, they do not. When they're at home, they do fall under a Marine. It's just like the SEALs fall under a Navy chain of command, the SF falls under an Army chain of command. Um, but when they're attached to a Jesotif under SOCOM. Uh, yeah, which is what I was getting at was that. Yeah, and they belong to that Jesotif, and that Jesotif is who takes care of them. Uh, now, now, that doesn't mean that they're going to um, provide them. See, there's, there's still that element on the side where the sailors still need to do what they need to do to get promoted, which is different from the Marines, which is different from the Army. Yeah. So those, uh, those things are being handled by the NCOs, et cetera, in the background. Yeah. Uh, the Jesotif's not responsible for that. They're only responsible for the care and feeding of those uh, elements while they're in the that. Yeah, so like mission tasking and all that's done through uh, outside of the Marine Corps is what I outside getting. outside of the Marine Corps. That's correct. So did right. as the new as the new kids on the block, how were you guys treated during that first push over in Afghanistan? You know, I can't complain. I think uh, I think there was this uh, idea that maybe we didn't. Uh, but they they loved our attitude of of never saying no to a mission. I think elements within SOCOM had started to get a little bit uh, um, headstrong and saying, you know what, that, that mission's not really what we do. We, we're not going to do that. And so the Marines were like, yep, we'll do that. Sure, we'll take that. Hey, no problem. We'll do that too. And that's just the way Marines think. They don't ever, you know, adapt to overcome to any situation is their, is their kind of motto, which I love. So... SOCOM loved that, but they also knew that they were going to do things the Marine Corps way. So initially what they did, I thought was very smart. They embedded us with an ODA, direct action team from the Army. So say, for example, on my first trip to Afghanistan, we were, we were with ODA 3235. So, so third group, so the Army uh, Special Forces units are uh, uh, broken into groups and third group. Uh, each group is responsible for a different area of the world, but because of the long 
nature of the war, they were using different groups and rotations. So the third group uh, was not necessarily assigned to the Middle East, but um, oh, I got that wrong. Third group actually is assigned to the Middle East. So it is their AO, um, but like seventh group, which is South America, they also deployed several times to Afghanistan, which is not their AO. But anyway, they would embed us. So we would be right next to guys in Humvees uh, with uh, MSOP guys, or even in the same vehicle sometimes. And I thought it was a good way to kind of do, uh, um, you know, inclusive, this is how we do things. It's different than you're used to doing. Um, and it sure is. Let me tell you, the, the Marine Corps way of assaulting through everything, close with and destroy the enemy by overwhelming firepower is not the way that SOCOM operates. So there has to be a, a change of mentality. And so it was good, not only for the leaders, but for us NCOs and corpsmen to see how they did business. They really wanted uh, to do business alongside the Afghan National Army partners. Uh, <clears throat> instead of being independent, and doing everything ourselves, we tried to get them to do things. Uh, and they really did a good job of teaching us. So I think that SOCOM did a, a, themselves a favor by doing it that way at first. They never embedded us with the SEALs, though, which is very interesting. That's because you would probably show the SEALs up. <laughs> I don't know. I would like to think so, but that's my rivalry talking there. Either that or they wouldn't have us. That was my other thought process is that they didn't want to deal with trying to train them lowly marines i'm not gonna say yes or no to either one of those <laughs> <laughs> so you make it through afghanistan come home i do are you with kids at this point in time no uh-uh no my wife uh was at this point really haggling me and uh i just had this fear just because I was still with units that were actively kicking doors and engaging um, the enemy regularly. So my idea was that it would be easier for her to move on if she was a single mother or excuse me, a single person rather than being a single mom. Single moms always have a harder time right. being on in relationships in life. And so I thought to myself, okay, if I get shot in the face, she's going to get a bunch of money and then she can move on and it'll be easier for her to do that. She, she argued with me. I ended up winning that argument. Um, so at this point we didn't have children. Uh, or, or you think you won that argument. Well, that's true, but either way, we still didn't have kids. <laughs> so what year was this when you got back from Afghanistan the first time? Uh, 2007. Oh, okay. Oh, so you, you went, Iraq, long course, Afghanistan, pretty quick. Yeah, it was like Iraq, 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 long course, Afghanistan right after that. So we basically got married and then spent a total of about literally nine months together over the course of the next five years. So at any point in time, did you question staying in at that, at that, at yeah, that level? In fact, she, in fact uh, I was an HM1. And I went to the long course and I got another, uh, there was another reenlistment bonus uh, coming up for senior recon corpsmen to stay in because now at this point, senior people were starting to retire. Um, the war had taken its toll on certain people and they were getting out. 
And so we've had the discussion and I was at the 12 to 14 year mark about this time of my career. And um, in my mind, there was no, no decision. In her mind, there was no decision, but they just weren't the same. Yeah. I was getting out and in my mind, I was staying in. So I made, I made a huge error. Don't ever do this people. I re-enlisted without telling her. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Did that six figure bonus help? Uh, yeah, but <laughs> not initially. Initially, that was a very big breach of, of trust. And yeah. it was. No, of course. Was, I, she was seeing things through an emotional point of view. And I, I realized see, sitting here today, if she was next to me, she would tell you that that was a good decision because it set us up uh, long term on a, in a, many ways. Benefits for my kids for college, uh, disability for me, uh, for you know injuries from the from my service, uh, retirement. It gives us freedom to make choices, right? So she, but at the time, that was a devastating thing for her because. Yeah. Well, of course, it, it and it's, it's, it was a bad. It was it. It, it certainly was a, a move that could cost another divorce in my life. Um, but I had this. I had this weird. And I know that you can relate to this. I had this weird loyalty crisis going on. These were people that I deployed with multiple times. Many of them, the same team members, multiple deployments. Here I had my wife who I loved. I'm going to spend my life with. But these are also like literally at this point, my brothers. Like no differentiation between them or any other member of my family. And can I say that I love them as much as I love my wife? Uh, dude, that, that question's hard to answer because many of them I would give my life for today after all this time, you know what I mean? And I would do that for my wife too. So there was this idea that if they were going back to battle, I didn't want to let them go without me. And that's so um, narcissistic. And so no, it's not because that's the reason why I reenlisted after my eight year break in service was I started thinking like, I'm a corpsman and got a whole bunch of 18 year olds that are enlisting now in 2004. What gives me the right to not go? I mean, I'm already trained. I could be the first one out the door. And yeah, so I, I get exactly what you're saying. It, 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 and I think, again, I may be just blowing smoke up my ass about corpsmen, but I think that's kind of in our nature. It is in our nature. But the idea now when I look back and I realize it wasn't a healthy way of looking at the fact that just because I wasn't going didn't mean somebody else wasn't going to take care of them as good as I could, right? Exactly. I had this idea that if I wasn't there, they weren't going to get the care that they needed. And that that just wasn't simply wasn't the case. In fact, it's led to me having some survivors get over the course of my life too. So, and uh, uh, the next deployment, I actually volunteered to stay in place and wait for the next uh, um, platoon coming in because they didn't have a corpsman. My, if my wife listens to this podcast, that will be the first time that she knows that. So did you end up staying? Staying where? In place. Yeah. Okay, that's, yeah. I, I, I know you said you volunteered. I, I did, I did a double back-to-back -back deployment. I just stayed in Kandahar and waited for them to get there. So during all of this time, I know this is going to, maybe be a hard question for you were you ever questioning your mortality okay um 
This is a very interesting question. <laughs> Discussed quite a bit by, uh, by many a Marine and, and sailor over the course of the last few deployments that we've talked about. All right, so the, the bottom line is I think that first deployment to Fallujah was so bloody and so uh, chaotic and just the war was so real and in my face all the time, seven months straight, just nonstop, that at some point I accepted the fact that every day that I went outside the wire, that was going to be my last day alive. And when you, I think when a human being gets to a place where they're okay with that, there's a numbness that kind of sets in. Mm -hmm. And, and so that numbness carried over through the other deployments and it almost makes you not right. It doesn't make you reckless, but it makes you, I think in some ways, a better warrior because when you're fear, fearful, you're hesitant. And when you've accepted the fact that, you know, Hey, any given day could be my day to get shot in the face or get blown up or to die or to lose legs or whatever the case may be, but this is my job and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to stop doing it. And I'm going to do it for the people to the left and the right of me. You know, that's all I can control. You just become numb to that, to that. And now I'm going to talk about something that's a little controversial, but I've also noticed that since we've gotten home, uh, people like myself who've maybe had a, a background of believing in a higher power uh, seem to be able to deal with it maybe uh, differently than those who don't. If you have a feeling that you're going somewhere after you die versus I don't know what's going to happen when I die, I think it's easier to accept. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I think it's the, it's a, the till the hollow thing. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, and that's what we, and that's what we do. You know, we'll see you in Valhalla, but we celebrate the, the people that didn't make it back, but we never forget them. You know, we, we always, we have to remember them. The, the, the citizens of this country aren't going to do it, but we are. And I think that there's an element of, for those who went before us that, thinking that you know we're going to see you on the other side so your loss hurts less is a big thing i agree yeah i don't want it to be the last time that i see some of those people i didn't get the proper way to say goodbye to them you know or uh you know whatever tell them <laughs> i wish i i work i wish i was smarter i wish i could have done more for you when you were bleeding out or whatever that's a hard one so, so did, did you ever have, and I, I apologize if we're going a little too deep on this, but did you ever have a moment that you thought whether you were hurt or shit was going down so bad that you weren't going to make it home? Oh, yeah, I got multiple of them. I got multiple of them, and it's okay. We can go deep into this. It's all right. I've, I've talked to the, to the shrinks about it, so... <laughs> I've kind of come to terms with it. Yeah, there was a, there was a few moments and I'll, I'll tell you, Fallujah has quite a few of them just because we were going house to house, right? And um, there's one particular incident that I remember, Recon Battalion was assigned to um, patrol the South Zidon area, okay? 
And if you look at the city from the, from the top down, they had broken it into areas and they had named it the actual city of Fallujah. They had named it after the five boroughs of New York City. So there was Queens and Brooklyn and all these, all these places, right? South of the city, they called it South Zidon. And it was this big area and it was kind of like the suburbs. Let's call it the suburbs. A lot of farmland, so forth. Our job was to patrol that area because every night they were sneaking weapons into the city through this area. So we were supposed to stop that, as well as to stop mortar attacks and rocket attacks coming into the, to the actual base uh, from that area. So I remember one night we had kind of done our patrol and we were kind of bunkering down out there. We called them presence in zone patrols. So as long as we stayed out there, less activity happened. So we would go out and then we would stay the night out there. And I was on top of the Humvee, for whatever reason, using binoculars to, to look. I had stood up outside, the, outside of the gunner's turret. And incoming came, and it was a, uh, a, a mortar round. I'm not sure to this day what size or whatever. But I remember, like, getting knocked off of that thing like somebody had hit, like Terry, Terry Tate the office linebacker had hit me off the top of this thing and ending up on my face. And so uh, Stanberry, one of the other uh, Marines, comes over and he's like, what the hell are you doing, dude? Why are you up on top of the deck? <laughs> he's like, you were shooting at us because of you. And I was like, dude, I think I just got hit by something. He turns me over and he's like, holy shit, doc. <laughs> Yeah, that sappy plate in the back had been hit by this big old piece of shrapnel and knocked me right the hell off of the Humvee. And I just sat there for a minute and I was like, oh, wow, that was, that was my moment. I'm invincible now. <laughs> so it didn't give you a reflective moment. It gave you the, I have superpowers. No, 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 man. I actually, I sat there that night and thought about it and I was like, okay, I can't even believe I survived that. A piece that big should have cut me in half. I don't even know, like, was there a guardian angel? Like, I don't, that was one moment. There's, there was another one when we were in Afghanistan pinned down behind this berm and they had us not in an L shape, but a U shape. They had us in a U shape ambush. It was amazing. Like these guys were, were really smart and they had, Damn. they had uh, a mortar team that had like first and second round effects. Like we were taking it back. Um, and then not to mention the guys that were on the hill on the Mark, 9, uh, Mark 19, we were supposed to sh throw out smoke for the lead element that was moving through this little town of Duresk. And um, for whatever reason, we were the lead element at the moment. And they didn't see our smoke because it was behind some terrain or a building or whatever. And so they started throwing Mark 19 down us on us too. So we were taking friendly fire at the same time. <laughs> it was a, fun. No, it wasn't. And several people got hit by like shrapnel. And I thought, okay, this is it. Like stuff's bouncing all around me. I'm thinking to myself, this is it. This is where we're out of here. Um, but luckily our fac was awesome. Called in fire. A couple of A-10s showed up and saved our butt. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you were saying earlier that, um, and I can agree with you on this, that the Iraqis were disorganized. Um, 
all the guys that we dealt with were hit and run, leave IEDs out in the middle of the road and yeah. have a command debt a thousand meters away. 100%. But you said you had some respect for the Afghanis. I sure do. I what, sure. what was it about it that made them? Just their resilience, first of all, to the to their cause. Uh, they, the, the Iraqis really, it was, it was about jihad for them. For the Taliban, I think it was more about you're 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 taking over something that belongs to us, and we're going to take it back. Because I've heard that they're very tribalistic, but it sounds but from what you're saying, it sounds like they had a nationalistic streak that yes, this is our land. Absolutely, it was almost like they were fighting for their country. They they collectively were fighting for their country, regardless of what was going on between them. They were fighting for their country. And not only not only were they fighting against us, but they were seasoned fighters with real military training. These are people that had fought the Russians before us. In fact, I remember I told you we set up a host nation clinic. Uh, we I, I had a, a man come in one day, and uh, he was having stomach issues. Ended up he had roundworm, right? So, but when I did his examination, he had seven AK wounds in his chest and torso and abdomen from God. the war against the Russians. He had fought against the Russians and received all that, all of those wounds. And he was trying to tell me about this through the interpreter. I mean, yeah, they, they were organized. They knew what they were doing. They had, they had the same teams of people that had fought against the Russians fighting against us. These were elderly people. These were people in their sixties. That's what I was going to ask you is where, so were the Afghani fighters um, older? I guess would be like chronologically, age-wise, older Absolutely. than they were. They were much older. They they were they tended to be, uh, say, thirties on. Uh, there wasn't a lot of young. There was there was some young fighters, but for the most part, they were savvy. They knew they knew where the choke points were. They would hit us in places where there would be Russian armor in hulks burned out they would hit us in the same spots like because afghanistan is so difficult to move around in they had all of that pinpointed just to a t it was very impressive they knew exactly where to hit us um and if we tried a different technique they would adapt to it, it, was, so, it was, i've often thought about this since i left iraq um and as of right now what is it october 21st 2020 I don't see a return to Iraq like we see the uh, the guys coming out of um, Normandy or you know World War II going to Iwo Jima. Do you think? Do you foresee a day that maybe the Afghani's will let Americans back to see some of the battle? Like, will there be a battle tour? Like, no. Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Like. Yes, I do. Will, will, there be words, will, there, will there be a mutual respect enough for yeah. us to come to terms and, and, and walk the ground where we fought prior yeah. to and have respect for one another, like the Japanese? Yeah. Or, or like even now with Vietnam, where a lot, of, right. a lot of Americans are going back and seeing where they fought. And even talking to people that they fought against in battles. Yeah. yeah. No, I do not believe that that will take place with the Taliban. I think that because of their ideology and the way that they feel about us and crusaders, that they don't see us as a legitimate 
human being. Um, I know that sounds crazy to say that, but if you read the Quran and the way that they think, it's we we we're infidels, and so I don't feel like they could ever put themselves on on par with us. To, to have the respect to walk the ground and say, this is what we did and we respected what you did. And no, I don't, I, I don't think that'll happen. It's, it's sad. Cause I mean, it does, you're not the only person I've heard that has a element of respect for how well they fight. Yeah. I, I, and, and just in, in their, their nationalistic kind of, we, this is ours, you know, yeah. we're not going to give it to you. I respect that. I do. So, Let's jump ahead a little bit. So you do your tours in Afghanistan at some point in time. And it's about the time that you and I met through a mutual friend of ours. Um, yes. You decide you're going to do something else with your career. Well, I don't decide. <laughs> My mama decides that for okay. me. Okay. <laughs> so, so you decide or she decides for you that it's time for you to get a desk job. Yes and or get a new life or both (laughs) so i guess the question i'm asking you is when you realize you're going to go to pa school um how did you feel about knowing that everything you just said about not wanting to let those guys go down range without you that was gonna you were gonna leave that community oh man that was that was that was heart-wrenching for me and I, and I say that not to be dramatic. It's just, I knew that this was closing a chapter of my life. I knew that when I left there and I took uh, orders to an instructor duty and then with goals to f- follow on my education, uh, further my education and, and possibly become something else that I would never go back to that lifestyle. I, I would never be doing those things again. And there's something about that camaraderie and doing those things with other men and brothers that's special. So I was mourning that loss at the same time, uh, accepting that I needed to grow up a little bit in my marriage and in life. I was, I mean, we're talking, I'm already in my thirties now, late thirties. So, uh, cause I didn't go through the pipeline, right. As a youngster, like most people did. So, um, it was, it was very difficult, the transition. And not to mention, a lot of people don't realize this, but when you work with so-called elements, w- with the exception of maybe a physical therapist or um, some kind of special advisor, you don't work with females. So had, I had to learn a whole new element of uh, workplace dynamics that I never had before. And whether or not that's a good or a bad thing about the military is irrelevant. It's just that for me, that was another element that I had to adapt to that was difficult. It created a whole new set of drama that I wasn't used to, as well as good learning experience for me as a leader. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot from that. So the, the change was hard in a lot of ways. I mourned it, but I was also celebrating this idea that we were gonna now uh, be parents and that I was going to be moving into this next stage of my life. So, so you get sent here to San Antonio. I did. Uh, how much was the Texas culture shock? Uh, the actual t- Texas 
That's a good question. I didn't really experience culture shock. I kind of felt like I was coming home. The, the people here were what I was used to dealing with. Good people, care about the country, like guns, like to hunt, like to be outdoors, like to fish. Um, I had just come from California where literally on some days there would be protesters at the front gate of the Marine Corps base uh, because of the war in Iraq, literally protesting like idiots that like we have a choice, the Marine Corps, yeah. don't protest in Washington. You know what I mean? But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. So, so the culture wasn't really a shock to me as far as the, the Texas people, the shock came from going from a base where there's not a day that goes by where there's not explosions, helicopters flying over, guns being fired, to there's lightning within five miles, everybody running high on a base because the Air Force does things differently, right? So, so like, you're, wait, this was 2009, 10? 10. 10. Yeah, that's right. So the Air Force had basically fully taken over Fort yes, Sam. Yeah. Yep, they had. And and I'm not saying anything negative about the Air Force. They have the rules for a reason. I will but say a me, lot of negative things about the Air Force, <laughs> and it's a fucking stupid rule. It is a stupid rule, but but so so coming into a culture where I was now going to be an instructor and I had to follow rules and you know watch my mouth and um, not be alone in a room with a female, things that I wasn't used to doing that I really needed, it was, that was a huge culture shock. And in fact, not only was I going through that, but now that I wasn't either preparing to go to war or at war or getting back from war and spending time with my wife, I, 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 I guess my, my subconscious had let down. This is the first time I started to experience any symptoms of issues from the war. And I didn't know what that was about either. I thought that was part of coming to Texas and making the change. And that started to come out in the form of anger at first, just a lot of anger, being angry at everything, anger at, anger at this uh, blanket just for being the color it was, you know what I mean? Uh, so uh, subsequently having, having the culture shock of coming into a new world, being an instructor, being a student to go to college and then dealing with all of this, plus being a new dad, was quite an interesting period of time. So I'm not ashamed to admit, though, that those hidden wounds are real things. No, yeah, and, definitely. Uh, you know, I've I've received a lot of counseling and gotten a lot of help for it, and I'm very happy that I have. And anybody out there listening, if you feel like you've come from a <clears throat> a unit like ours and and it's weak to get help, I will tell you right now that that is not the case. It takes a strong person to admit that you're having a, a hard time. Yeah, definitely. And I mean. There's still a there's still a stigma around PTS, PTSD, whatever you want to call it. Uh -huh. um, and I don't necessarily agree with the protocols that are in place right now for treating it. Medicate, 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 medicate. Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much. Well, there is a, there is a lot of um, focus on coping skills. Right, if and... you get the right people. Correct. And I think that that is the great, that's the right way to move towards is yes. what, you know, what are you doing to cope with it? Are you, are you uh, 
doing things that are negative to cope with it, i.e. numbing yourself with alcohol or drugs, or are you doing the right things by, you know, focusing and being mindful? What yeah. is it? It's, yeah, those things, types of things. Yeah, and I, I it, some of the alternative treatments that you and I have talked about, CBD, um, you know, uh, medical marijuana, um, I think some of those things are also valid and need more study. They definitely do. And I, I do know, uh, listening to another podcast uh, that's hosted by a SEAL, they were just talking with a with a former, I think he was a CMC of DevGrew, and saying how integrated mental health has become at the special missions units and within SOCOM. So that's a good forward movement. I agree. And if I, they're going to move forward, it's going to be SOCOM first. Yeah, and I do think that the Marine Corps and the Navy Expeditionary Forces needs more help on the psychology and psychiatric side, for sure, with this. A, a way to identify early, even though... Yeah, especially the Marine Corps, because their training model is just so um, necessary for the Marines to do what they do. But then at the, at the back end of it, it, it's counterproductive to them saying, okay, now it's okay. Now, now you can ask for help. I'm a big advocate. If we're gonna, if we have to reallocate money from the military budget, like I don't think we need a new aircraft carrier every two or three years. Put that money into mental health and troop welfare. So one of the things we'll get to where you went, but I do just want to get this out because it's on top of my head. One of the things I've noticed during this COVID lockdown is the base has been open, but apparently students aren't allowed to leave. They can't go on liberty. No, they're not allowed off the base. So I. At the peak of the summer, for some reason, the pool, the outdoor pool is open to the public or to the base residents and to retirees. Oh. Go figure. Um, I drove by on the way to go shoot archery, and there was an Army girl with her shirt, with her Army PT shirt tied in a knot, walking down from where the core school is towards a pool in her bikini bottoms, and not a single person in uniform said a word to her. So I'm going to leave it at that as far as uh, when you get people locked on base, standards seem to fall away when it comes to appropriate civilian attire on base. Well, Tommy, buddy, there's also a reason that Shep Reimer retired when he did too. Well, I'm going to come to that. <laughs> so you I have a question. I have a question. Yes. Are we allowed to do part two of this? Yes. Do you want to do part two? Well, the reason I say that is I've got coaching in half an hour. Oh, go, 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 man. I'm going to end the recording here. We'll be back for part two. Good, because I want to continue. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.